0: We got a problem The manifest Jack, the census The names of everyone who survived All 46 of us I interviewed everyone Here, at the beach Got their names One of them One of them isn't Jack One of them isn't in the manifest He wasn't on the plane Hello there (laughs)
1: Lost is over, but we have to go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch Podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wigler, joined here by Mike Bloom. Neither of our names are in the manifest yet. We're flying anyway.
2: Ah, uh, Josh, I have been excitedly counting down the seconds until we get to podcasts again. One sugar plum fairy, <laughs> two sugar plum fairies.
1: <laughs> What a great mechanism for keeping track of time, by the way. I assume you implemented that uh, as uh, Angela was in labor with your with your child, Asher Bloom.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I would certainly say a uh, number of. Speaking of, you know, surgeries were uh, included in our version of the staff, our own hospital room, as things were happening. So, I mean, the sugar plum fairies were out the window at this point. (laughs) I was just sort of feeling like, all right, I hope this baby comes out fine and will be raised by us and not by another. So uh, I was hopeful that as long as none of the doctors delivering my child look like William Mapother I, I that's what i was most fearful of
1: william mapother is a, fanta- a fantastic pronunciation of mapother especially as he is one of the others uh and he makes himself fully known here mike in raised by another which is an episode i've been very excited to get to here on the lost rewatch podcast for a good little while for so many reasons but largely because of what we're, what we're talking about right now. It's something that we started talking about long ago when we started this podcast 8,000 years ago, it feels like, uh, is how Lost shifts for you when you re-encounter it uh, based on where you are in your life versus where you were in your life when you first saw it. And Mike, you're a very different person now than you were when you first encountered Lost. You're a father now. You and Angela have a beautiful baby boy. Uh, and you had said at the start of Down the Hatch that you were really eager to track Claire as as a character. Well, here we are with our first Claire-centric episode, and I'm so excited to get your takes on all of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is also probably the most centric with Claire and the baby, I guess because she's still pregnant and there's a lot of paranoia revolving around what happened to her both on and off island. It'll be very interesting to track as well how that storyline kind of diverges over the course of loss, especially once Aaron is born. It really feels like You know, there might be some times when, you know, we have Claire via Libby's uh, psychoanalytic techniques revisiting her time in the staff. Uh, You know, there's some times where we sort of touch upon what happened when Claire was pregnant. But I feel like because the Aaron storyline sort of takes off in a completely different direction, we don't broach the subject of Claire in parenthood many times. You know, it feels like after Aaron is born, it's a lot about, like, how the other characters interact with Claire and Aaron. We don't get many stories of like, oh, Claire's been up all night because the baby keeps crying. (laughs) Yeah, So I can't... A few here and there,
1: but they really are few and far between.
2: Yeah, so I don't know how relatable I find it from that perspective, but this episode was so intriguing for me from... And a very unexpected perspective, particularly in these flashbacks, when you're uh, when you find out that you're pregnant and you're getting ready to become a parent and all the responsibilities therein. I I felt seen, Josh, <laughs> as the kids say, as the errands of the world say. Uh, there was a lot of surprising relatability from some very surprising places, and I'm excited to get into it all. Plus, this badass ending. I know we'll get we'll get to it in the others, but this is you know this is a lost ending at its finest. Big twist, a lot of malevolence, sets up Huge stakes for what's to come. So
1: much malevolence. I'm so excited to talk through this episode for all of the reasons. Of course, this is Lost Down the Hatch. It's a spoiler-filled rewatch of Lost. Not a safe space if this is your first watch through Lost. We want your feedback. We've got a full section that's devoted to it that we will get to in a little while. You can send that in by email, down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also tweet at us. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. Make sure you're tagging at show recaps as well. Uh, We record these podcasts on Tuesday afternoons, so we want your feedback by Tuesday mornings at the absolute latest, ideally Monday evenings. If you are not subscribed already, please do so. Your ratings and reviews are so tremendously appreciated as we are moving forward down the hatch. And with all of that said, we go forth into the jungle to talk about Raised by Another Mike, which is directed by Marita Grabiak and written by Lynn E. Litt, both of whom uh, are only credited as director and writer on Lost for this episode. This is it. Lynn E. Litt has uh, consulting producer credits through, I think, at least Hearts and Minds, um, that this is the only writing credit for Lynn E. Litt. It originally aired on December 1st, 2004, and of course, focuses on the lone Australian on Oceanic Flight 815, Claire Littleton.
2: I wonder if Oceanic is just so profiling in that they're like, all right, we want to have as many anti-Australian people so that they could really come out with, you know, once upon a time, your boy worked for an Outback Steakhouse. He knows how to be tackly Australian, at least from an Americanized perspective. Maybe they were trying to do that. Have Cindy come out with the boomerang and you know, uh, a big kangaroo pouch, and try to you know be the exotic Australians for all the passengers aboard. And Claire just happened to sneak her way on board.
1: Yeah, we definitely have some feedback on this front later on in the podcast. Some of some of our Australian listeners who may be shaking their collective fists at lost representation of their nation. Uh, but we will we will get there much later on. For now, before we even start talking about the episode itself, Mike, we have to do what we've been doing. For each of these podcasts thus far, uh, the series Bible that charts uh, the initial journey, the initial ideas of what lost was going to be and we're getting close to the end of the line uh we've only got a, a few more characters to talk about from the series bible perspective i think we're gonna have to make like a fake series bible entry for every character for, moving for, forward. for
2: next week we're gonna have like a fake one for jack
1: yeah we have to do like a secondary one for for jack so uh if we've got a volunteer for somebody who wants to emulate the house style of the series bible we are certainly <laughs> certainly open to your audition. Just take a
2: book of mad libs <laughs> yeah. and fill them in <laughs> in old caps and send the results to i us. mean i think.
1: You're be kind of fun like what is the what is like the second series bible entry for jack shepherd uh in the in the in the context of all the best cowboys we would love to know from you guys so feel free to send that in but let's talk about claire from the perspective of the series bible let's find out which word gets capitalized this time this is what is written about claire in the series bible When wild child Claire found herself in a family way, her immediate instinct to get rid of the baby was overcome by an even greater instinct to make a sizable chunk of cash. Taking advantage of the massive market for newborn babies in the States, Claire reached out to a Beverly Hills adoption agency and instantly found a couple willing to pay $40,000 for her unborn child. Denying herself any emotional connection for fear of building a bond she has broken in advance, the last thing Claire wants to be is a mother. Now she's forced to confront that inevitability as the baby inside her creates a unique connection to the island's mysteries. That's well, the word. That's- word illustrated this is in parentheses illustrated by terrifying nightmares okay con- why is
2: it terrifying nightmares at all conne- that's by far the more unique <laughs> phrase
1: a connection she is too frightened to share with the others uh wow i uh, the, the series bible entry for claire pretty far afield from where we're, go- <laughs> where we're going with this character ultimately. yeah
2: essentially she's like a f- Like a baby-mongering Sawyer of like, let me run a con by selling my baby off.
1: (laughs) Oh my god! Uh, yeah, baby-hoarding Sawyer is a terrifying character. I would have terrifying (laughs) nightmares about that. But yeah, the capitalization of MYSTERIES is just... uh i don't know i don't know there's a lot i have a lot of questions about the series bible entry on Claire. Honestly,
2: <laughs> to be fair i think this is a great representation of the fact that the show had no idea what to do with this character from the jump considering just how ubiquitous this entry is do you
1: think that eventually lost figures out what they're doing with claire or would you say that that's across the board that claire is one of the characters that they just never fully get a, a good grasp on
2: I mean, I would not like to be pessimistic through, you know... I, I We're going to talk a lot about this character, who I feel like is actually has a great portrayal in this particular episode. But I feel like it's representative of the fact that we haven't talked about this much, but I feel like over the past, like, five episodes, Emily de has been in, like, two of them. So, and, you know, we've seen series regulars sort of uh, come into part, but I feel like Claire has been the one that has been largely the most absent in the first half of the first season. And I wonder... I can't remember if part of it was scheduling conflicts, or if it's just like, they don't know what to do with her. I mean, she's not in an entire season of the show, and they're like, oh, yeah, she went feral on the island. It it really does feel like, for some strange reason, after the baby was born, they're like, what do we do with Claire now? And the direction that they went with her was just completely out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, I think that... um in in the early going at least Emily Deraven I don't know if she was like a full scale series regular I think that it's not until later on in season 1 that she's like actually credited for, credited for even episodes that she doesn't appear in which is the standard uh, operating procedure for the series regulars of the show I think she only gets billing when she's on screen for like the first half of the season, so I don't know if she had like a different deal than everybody else. I, I'm real. I'm really kind of speaking out of school on it, but I think that there was something like that with Emily DeRavin. Um, certainly when you contrast her overall journey uh, in the grand scheme of Lost to this series Bible entry, and as you say, Mike, even in the context of Raised by Another, uh, it's a pretty different story that we end up getting with her. Um, I think Claire is one of the examples of those characters that is um, is better because of the performance than because of the writing. I think that there are some ideas mm-hmm. that are in play with Claire that are that are compelling and interesting but maybe ultimately not quite as far flung as they could be like maybe not quite as as detailed as some of the other characters that we get in terms of the fuller sketches of these people. Um, but I don't know, I, it's early days, and this is certainly, a, a, yet, yet again, another episode that I really, really like. Here we are in the first season of Lost, and you know there has not been an episode that I have not greatly enjoyed, uh, raised by another no exception, and I think a lot of that... Uh, hinges on Claire. There's a lot of other stuff that we're going to be pulling on as well with like the, the true arrival of Ethan here. A lot of great Hurleyisms as well. Um, but so much of the success of this episode, uh, it's not just the twists and turns of which there are many. It's a really, really strong performance by Emily de Ravin. No one can quite scream act
2: yes. the way that
1: Emily de Ravin can scream act.
2: What a great way to bring in an act. I mean, you know, like you're back from commercial. <laughs> you just watched, I don't know, uh totino's pizza rolls being <laughs> schlepped out and you just hear yeah. a piercing shriek and you're right you're like oh loss is back on great better get those totinos out of the oven and uh snack down
1: oh man i would love some totinos right now
2: yeah i mean i think uh claire would too except Charlie probably brought, like, an imaginary baking tray full of them being like, ooh, they're hot. Be careful, they're piping
1: hot. Yeah, they'll burn the roof (laughs) of your mouth, these Tatino pizza rolls. Could
2: you imagine, like, Charlie's kitchen where it's just all these invisible cooking props that Charlie's like, all right, better mix the batter now
1: for my creme brulee. Yeah, my Bonafide pie. Yeah, I don't know about Tatino's pizza rolls, but I'm pretty sure Charlie would like to show Claire some enchiladas at some point. Oh, Uh, boy.
2: (laughs) We'll talk about that. Well, she has the, uh, the, the area, I guess, to hold. Hold some plates of food up yeah. with ease.
1: We'll talk about it. All right. Well, let's get into our summary of Raised by Another, helped along by the assistance of eight sounds from the episode. You already heard a really big one at the top of the episode, because that's just the... You gotta start with the with the craziest moment from this episode. Uh, it's just so good. We just had to rush right into it. Uh, and uh, we will not uh, we will not throw any of the Claire screaming at you in the sounds. We, val- we value your ears. Yeah, I was just going to say, we value your eardrums.
2: Well, oh my god! Yeah, we're
1: so in sync, Mike. Oh my goodness. Alright, so the episode begins. We open on an eye, because of course we open on an eye, and we hear a baby crying, and it's Claire. She is way Confused, uh, they're screaming off in the distance. Uh, not her own, I don't think. Uh, she lurches awake. She's in the caves, and she's not pregnant anymore. the The baby bump is is missing, and I feel like, Mike, this is an early sign uh, that the island is going to heal Claire's baby bump later on, literally overnight. Uh, at some point later on in this season, Claire is going to give birth to Aaron and. A scene later in the space of that very episode, she's going to be walking around with everybody and she's just like back to like normal tummy mode.
2: Yeah, uh, actually, this is rather timely because of the time of recording this. My lovely wife, Angela, just put out a very beautiful social media post depicting uh, the struggles that she had with her own body image issues, especially post birth. It ain't realistic. <laughs> Suffice it to say, there's not, not a lot of verisimilitude going on here yeah. with Emily DeRaven. I'm glad she was able to get into fighting conditions so quickly after giving birth to Aaron, but yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to sign that the, there certainly can be questions of like, wait a minute, was the actress really pregnant? I think this is uh, a scene that very much promptly puts that answer in the no column.
1: Pretty, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the island heals John Locke's paralysis, uh is this such a far-flung thing that's the- well, what did she what did she give to the island <laughs> yeah, no blocks rule i don't know what the rule is uh yeah there's no justification i think that the representation of claire's post-pregnancy especially uh and this is coming from somebody with little personal experience but mike sounds like you uh, and angela could weigh in on this a little bit better uh maybe not the most realistic <laughs> the most realistic portrayal by any stretch of the imagination
2: yeah, uh, definitely not. But it's fine. It's a dream. It's a dream. They're, and there are and they're much more freakier things than uh, Claire's hourglass figure yes, post-birth.
1: Yes, Including who Claire sees in this next moment in her dream. She's going to stalk off into the jungle in search of the crying, and she eventually finds a certain man of faith who is hanging out in the woods, John Locke, sitting at a desk, fiddling around with stuff, and he's looking down at his table. And when he looks up, we see something very disturbing, and we hear something very disturbing. And in fact, let us hear that something in our first sound from the episode.
0: What's happening?
1: You
3: know what's happening.
4: But I, I don't understand. Why?
3: It was your responsibility, but you gave him away, Claire. Everyone
1: pays the price now. <laughs> All right, that's the extent of the screaming. It's not clear. Yeah,
2: the baby, the baby's screaming, the baby's which screaming. I have become very accustomed to. And it definitely, uh, my son was sleeping in the other room while I was watching this, and it definitely like made me check the baby monitor of like. My God, it's immersed into my reality now. It seeped through like the
1: black goo that was in the crib. Oh, my God. The black goo is so messed up. What is the black goo?
2: I don't know, Josh. You and I had a lot of goo talk over the summer in Stranger Things, so I guess it puts the goo in goo goo gaga. Uh, <laughs> That's so there's dumb. Of, there's a lot of really interesting symbols going on here, and I guess as we talk about this dream, I'll throw out a question here. I know we're going to have a lot of talk about whether uh, the lovely Mr. Malkin uh, actually has cognitive abilities. But could this dream be precognitive? Because the symbols are so interesting. First, you obviously have Locke, who has the uh, white and black stones in his eyes. We obviously know that the man who was holding the black stone is going to become Locke, essentially, very much down the line. He's brandishing a knife, which that man in black also used to great effect. I believe Locke is uh, at the table working on a tapestry, which I know Jacob is very fond of. Ooh. Obviously, when we get to the Plainmobile in uh, the crib, that was from the staff, even though Claire has yet to be at the staff. I'm, I'm just so yeah, obsessed. Mike, with- I
1: have it in my notes also to ask you uh, for the name of the Mobile because I don't remember. I, I did not know what that was called, uh, and I figured that you as a, as a recent father would be able to identify that object for me. It uh, just goes to show how disconnected from my youth I am.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't have one, but for some reason, I guess it was something that we were looking at. It's, it's that little thing where there are a lot of things balanced and you spin it around and it plays a song. Ironically enough, it plays the same song that Christian Shepherd, apparently sang to Claire. So everything is connected via the Perry Como of it all. But yeah, I mean, these this dream is hinting at a lot of events. Some as immediate as later on this season. What do you think, Josh? Do you think that this is hinting toward bigger things? And if so... What does that say about Claire and her connection to the island?
1: Well, so obviously, as we are want to do here on Down the Hatch, we like to do the long retcon. Uh, and we like to imagine that anything that can be a smoke monster is the smoke monster. Knowing where things go for Terry O'Quinn's time on Lost and his final season appearance is predominantly Man in Black, and here we are seeing him uh flipping over cards, and he's got, like you say, like some sort of tapestry on the table, and he's got the black eye and the white eye. How could we how could we say that this is anything but uh, a sign of the future of the Man in Black's eventual ascension in the form of John Locke. And, of course, how it relates to Claire, that Claire eventually is going to come to know this guy as, Oh, it's my friend! I know that's not my dad, it's my friend! Uh, is, you know, what she keeps talking about in the final season of the show. Is this planned as early as Raised by Another? Much uh, like Claire's pregnancy, no. <laughs> no, is it? Is it a happy accident? Yeah. Much like Claire's
2: pregnancy, yes. (laughs) I would
1: say so. Uh, And I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, it does make Lost more rich when you go back. Uh, And you see some of this and you just think about how it can potentially relate to where the show goes in the long haul. Um, And I think that it's the kind of thing where uh, if you imagine that attitude of best idea in the room wins and like you're trying to like reconnect old things, like what was the fabric that was woven in much like a tapestry earlier on in Lost? This is certainly something you can point back to as the as the writer team, uh, as the team of writers uh, going back and be like, what did we set up with John Locke? I think from a lot of the stuff that we've been reading, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, pretty clear that early on there were definitely like designs on a more nefarious. John Locke for for the grand uh, scheme, the grand picture of of Lost. So there's, they're actively setting that stuff up just in case that's the direction they're going. And even though they end up going into a more tragic direction with Locke, ultimately they have all of this imagery on the table, uh, much like the tapestry. So the black and white eye, John Locke, and like the the scary line delivery of of him talking here, and eventually coming up with like a, a paternal closeness between Locke and Claire that can you know be reflected. in the the form much later on of the man in black and Claire. uh, These are all very happy accidents that they can can weave in and out of each other much later on down the line. Intentional now, no, but an exciting thing that you can point back to, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, quite frankly, I guess, knowing the twin peaks of it all, I'm very surprised that Locke was not talking backwards, but I guess they wanted to save that for Walt yeah. for next season. Yeah,
1: they wanted to use that for later. All right, so everyone pays the price now, Locke tells Claire, uh, and I guess the price is- And that's is- when Philip
2: Price comes in.
1: <laughs> Jack! Yeah, I think it's probably, <laughs> the, the price seems to be uh, the, the constant screaming, not just of of uh, baby Aaron, unborn baby Aaron, but of Claire herself, as she. She finds a crib in the woods. She sees the Oceanic 815 Playmobil, the spinning toy thing, I say in my notes. I say, Mike, what is the spinning toy thing called? Uh, I'm glad to have an answer. Uh, and Claire is unwrapping layers upon layers of blankets in the crib until she finds the deep, dark goo goo gaga. Uh, <laughs> she so artfully described it. And then she wakes up screaming, Mike, and we do not have that sound on standby. Uh, I will not imitate it. If you've ever watched Lost, I am sure it's seared into your memory because it's intense and blood curdling and horrifying. Uh, and everyone wakes up around the caves and they're like, what's going on? And Charlie rushes over to her and says, you were, sleep- you were sleepwalking. It was a dream. It was bad. And then everyone looks and sees that her hands are freaking covered in blood stigmata, Mike. <laughs> my God, Claire was Jesus all along and we didn't even know it. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, and so that cuts us to the intro of the episode. It's a pretty (laughs) harrowing way to start Lost. So far, does it come to mind for you anything that, like, uh, of any of these episodes that we've talked about so far, do any of them strike you as anywhere nearly this, like, surreal, right? Like, this this is unique. There's definitely, like... Uh, vision quest qualities earlier on in Lost, like in White Rabbit and stuff. But this is like the strangest shit we've gotten into for sure.
2: Yeah, and I would say that it's it's still pretty up there. Like, I'm trying to think of... I mean, I guess when we get into uh, Jin speaking English and have a cluckety-cluck-cluck day of it all down the line, that it's gonna get a little crazier, but I love that this introduces the motif of dreams in Lost. Because like you said, I think we've had visions and or hallucinations depending on who you speak to but this is the first time somebody has outright gone to sleep had a freaky ass nightmare and then woke up and it certainly won't be the last so i'm really glad that among many things introduced in this episode is going to be that recurring plot element.
1: Yeah, and I, I, we didn't talk about it just now, or at least I, I forgot to mention it, but there, there definitely are theories that the smoke monster is able to like activate dreams, that is able to visit people in dreams. There's like the yummy stuff with Mr. Echo in season two. Um, so with that being said, could that be something that's happening here with Claire and the smoke monster and the dreams that are occurring here? Certainly not off the table um all right in the morning jack is wrapping claire's hands uh he says it must have been a hell of a nightmare because she dug her fingers a quarter inch into her palms
2: oh my god well that maybe that just means that somebody should get a pair of nail clippers out i mean i actually took this in my notes for solitary and i I didn't talk about it in our podcast amongst many things Said has very long fingernails Mm -hmm. yeah I guess Claire might have been in the same area. I don't know. Somebody's going to have to start up like a nail salon on the <laughs> island to yeah. just give up some manis.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we talked about it before. I feel like maybe we talked about this a few podcasts ago. It's it's way too early for us to be forgetting details. But here we are uh, where Naveen Andrews uh, is like a classical guitarist. Uh, and so he grows yes, he, yes, yes. he grows out his nails to, to do finger picking. I don't know what your excuse is, Claire, uh, but the, the ferocity of the nightmare was such that she does dug her fingers a quarter inch deep into her palms. Uh, I like this scene because it's not the first time we're seeing Jack and Claire together. We've already talked about uh, the siblings Shepherd interacting without realizing that they are the siblings shepherd. Uh But here is like this episode is in some ways it's like their their softest interactions and also like their first sibling fight. Uh, because Jack is like going to be like a really terrible guy uh, and not believe that Claire uh, is, uh, you know, her story of being assaulted. Uh, but, you know, for now, he's trying to help her out. He's trying to relate to her. He's like, yeah, you're probably sleepwalking. I sleepwalk too. I had a girlfriend who didn't like it. Uh,
2: I, uh, I, I am sort of in Jack's territory in that I apparently. Have some issues talking in my uh huh
1: yeah th- I can attest to this actually Mike wait really yeah tell me this yeah. <laughs> uh, so so Mike Bloom and I stayed in a room together in Fiji when we were both out <laughs> for Survivor 39 Island of the Idols. and Mike you definitely have a little bit of the Tommy Sheehan in you a little bit of what was I doing a little bit of the night terrors um, wait really <laughs> yeah you definitely like you definitely had some moments where you're just like ah wait just, like, like, what uh, <laughs> flailing about and screaming a little bit and there was one moment where I was like oh shit <laughs> it was really really freaky I, I had no idea seven months later I had no idea I, th- I could have sworn that I had talked to you about this no. but, but I but I also feel like I talked to Angela about this I feel like Angela and I talked about this uh, so I don't know if I'm now dreaming that but I definitely remember you having a little bit of the night terrors so you and Claire have something else in common
2: Mike. I just something about that Fiji man I guess it brings the night turns out i know that i do sleep talk angela has recounted a few times where one time i rolled over and was uh talking to wolverine what who i refer to as <laughs> as reggie like i would just have a full conversation with wolverine where i exclusively refer to him as reggie but apparently i was like i wouldn't say screaming like emily draven but like talking extremely loudly to reggie slash wolverine uh one time why I- is wolverine's
1: name reggie
2: I was apparently I was very personal with him. You know, like Logan. Oh everyone knows Logan, but I know Reggie. Maybe Reggie is like one of his do.
1: undercover assignments or something.
2: Yeah, that's the man underneath the adamantium, truly. Uh there was one time when I when I was doing children's theater that apparently my roommate told me I did an entire autograph session with a child where like I talked back and forth with them in character. In my sleep, so <laughs> oh my Yeah, gosh. I'm lucky like, I have a, a partner that was more resilient wow. than Jack's girlfriend. Yeah.
1: Emily sleepwalks every once in a while. I'll like I'll like holler in my sleep a little bit, but that's more like uh light sleep apnea stuff uh than than anything. But I think that we all have some experience with this. I do feel like there's a missed opportunity from Lost's perspective to not have like a, a deep episode of Jack going sleepwalking. I would have loved to have seen what that was all about.
2: Yeah, I like sleepwalk with Jack.
1: Yeah, sleepwalk with Jack would have been good. Uh, but she says, other than that, like, the sleepwalking is intense, but everything else should be checking out. The OBGYN back in Australia, she was great. Uh, Claire says she's mostly feeling pretty good. She gets a little dizzy if she stands too fast. Yep. She has to pee all the time, Yep, says. uh That sucks. That's tough. Ye-
2: yeah, it's uh it's tough. I mean, I guess if you also maintain a diet of bore and banana, the old B&B. Yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly how much your dietary needs are being filled, but it seems like she's in relatively good health aside from the now gaping wounds in her hands. Are
1: you going to be referring to the survivor B&B as the bore and banana moving forward?
2: Listen, Le- poor Leona
1: Boris has been
2: given oh, one too many wow. misconceptions that I think that calling her the boring and banana might be uh,
1: one step too far. Leona Boris and then you're the banana yeah the, ba- the banana it works it works uh so jack asks claire how far along she is how where when did you find out you were pregnant and like it's such a great like well jack i could tell you but wouldn't it be so much better if i showed you and we get our uh our first flashback scene of the episode and why don't we listen in on that let's go to sound number two claire finding out that she's pregnant
4: Is it pink? I don't know yet. I mean, did, did you actually pee on it? Just give me a second. Maybe you didn't do it right. Thomas, I, I can
3: pee on a okay, stick. Okay, well, what color is it? How long is it pink? Oh,
0: it's 66 seconds. Oh, gosh. Okay. Shh. okay, it's definitely two lines. Two pink lines? Pink? No, no, no. These are like red.
4: What? <sighs> They're pink.
1: These two lines, Pink. okay, first of all, these tests are not always accurate. Thomas! No, 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 my uncle, you know, we thought he had uh, testicular cancer, you remember that? He did, he's dead! <laughs> <laughs> that's such a great moment. <laughs> he did, he's dead!
2: Oh, uh, yeah, she, she, I mean, listen, I know that there's a lot of dra- dramatics going on in this episode for Claire, oh. but this, that's it. Emily Draven plays great comedy against the pure buffoonery of one Thomas.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thomas played by Keir O'Donnell, who uh, people will remember if they were wedding crashers fans. He played Todd. Is he like, do you think he was
2: like, I can paint my own paintings and that's why you should hire me for this movie?
1: I think that's probably it. Thomas is the worst, by the way. I hate Thomas so much.
2: All right. So here's the thing we're going to get to a later scene where I can see the, not the logic, but I can see Thomas's psychology from a certain perspective. What he ultimately ends up doing is despicable and deplorable. I absolutely agree. But I feel like in this first scene, at least things are played for laughs. He's the one that really brings Claire around on this idea of, like, no... We can do this together. It seems like he he's at least on board with supporting her in the moment, but I, I'll, I'll cherish that feeling until he completely becomes a terrible person. Yeah, the but then flashback. he completely
1: full-on abandons her, like a thorough abandonment in like a horrible day-drinking douchey kind of way. No forgiveness for Thomas. He's not funny enough to be forgiven for uh, what he does later on. Uh, I have the lion's share of the LVP points to assign this week, Mike. Spoiler alert, Thomas is in trouble.
2: Uh-oh, is Hurley going to have to tell him he needs the points? Yeah,
1: you're going to lose the points. Uh, I will also
2: say, uh, Fashion Watch this week, Thomas is uh, rocking the white sweater underneath the big baggy sweater. Uh, the right t-shirt, I should say, which uh, I'm not sure. I guess that means that he's such a poor, starving artist that he like is wearing that sweater multiple times. But he will upgrade later, which shows you know how much of a big businessman Thomas has become to wearing the white collared shirt underneath the sweater yeah, so his choice in undershirt
1: shows how he's moving on up and promptly moving on out he's got that nine to five to take care of uh but the scene continues and claire's freaking out as is understandable uh, and thomas says um you know wait a minute this might not be so bad in fact this could be like the best thing ever i love you i want to make this work i'm a painter my paintings are awesome i'll be able to support us uh, I can sell
2: all these paintings of Vince Vaughn naked and eventually someone will take it
1: exactly uh Claire says at one point she's like i if I do this, my mom's gonna disown me uh, and Thomas says she basically already has
2: yeah this is an extremely low blow given what we know of Claire's mother that she's in a
1: coma. <laughs> Yeah, so where where's this coming from? This is just like uh, we didn't carefully uh, retcon this one later on. Oh, down
2: completely. Because I th- yeah. cause I think when it's all revealed in Paravion, I think that's next season, right? So I don't I don't it's think season they had
1: three. It. I think so. It's it's a while. They've got some time.
2: Yeah. So I I don't think they have this in mind. But if you try to connect it canonically, it sounds extremely harsh coming from Thomas. Maybe it's just a really bad joke of like, yeah, I guess your mom technically disowned you because. You know, she's barely functioning at brain capacity and can't move her body.
1: Yeah. freaking Thomas. Uh, all right. Let's go back to the island. We go to the beach. Jack is doing his daily trek to the beach. Uh, Jack is a commuter. You know, he's a big commuter. He's always going back and forth between the caves and Oceanic. Uh, and he comes to find Kate. And Kate's not doing anything. She's just standing there on the beach. And Jack's really impressed. He's like, wow, look at you. Not running for once.
2: Yeah. This is a first. You're standing still in the middle of the day doing nothing.
1: That's amazing. And uh, she says, I'm not standing still. I'm sinking. Uh, And she says, the water goes out and it takes the sand with it and you sink. Uh, And I got to say, Mike, uh, I don't know if this was something that I did before Lost or post Lost, but I definitely, if I'm at a beach, I will often do this where I'll just like stand still and the, the tide will come in and wash the sand away and your feet just sink in a little bit more and more. It's highly relaxing. Highly uh, recommend I, it.
2: I i did it all the time as well as a kid i was not a huge fan of the ocean but between that and playing a game my family and i used to call wave sticks that's how the blooms spent their time on
1: mm, the beach the waves have, you're in my wave sticks uh, Yeah, exactly
2: it's uh, where we took shannon rutherford and we just sort of threw in their waves no we would take like a little plastic stick and we throw it right where the waves were crashing down and then we try to follow the stick as it washed up on shore
1: Ooh, that's cool i like that wave sticks
2: yeah it's a nice way to, like, you know, get your feet wet and not have to go too far into the ocean. So, yeah. You know, all, all the hydrophobics, like, that's my recommendation between that and
1: sinking. Maybe don't throw plastic into the ocean anymore. Uh, I know. I was part of the problem. <laughs> the wood would be good or something else of that nature, uh, of that variety. Uh, Jack says, wow, that's a good plan. You're going to sink your way off the island. Said would be proud. It's like awkward. That's sort of like, Said's going to kind of almost die this way. <laughs> I guess at first he blows up, but, like, the, the Saeed goo goo going to is going to <laughs> is gonna sink to the bottom of the ocean, man. This is just uncomfortable.
2: Ah, oh, you're going you're gonna to get into a submarine and, and have it explode with people
1: aboard. Saeed would be proud. Saeed would be proud. Uh, and it's also a little triggering for Kate where she says, Saeed's been gone for a week. This is kind of intense. And Jack's like, yeah, well, you know, he's still a soldier. He's still going to be fine. Uh, Kate asks Jack what he's doing this far away from the caves. And usually, the sounds we pull into the episodes here on the podcast are very profound uh, and sketch out very uh, iconic moments uh, from Lost. This one is none of those things. I just thought it was funny.
0: Bringing water down, bringing fish back,
1: bringing fish back. Uh, just as we are, uh, we are releasing this podcast in the afterglow. Of the Survivor Know It Alls live in New York. It was so great to see all of you who came up to us. Uh, and said, uh, "You're loving down the hatch. You're listening to it every week. It was so great meeting you guys in person. I assume we're actually recording this before we're the doing live, our we own out. sort of time traveling so. We
2: had we had dreams of you all with black and white stones in your eyes at the bar, walking out down the hatch.
1: I'm hoping there were one of two of you, but otherwise this is
2: awkward. I know. Like I say, wow, it was great talking with people that really like the podcast.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, we just get roasted in person. Is what's actually going." Going to happen, so you tell us if this part held up or not in the future. Uh, so bringing water down, bringing fish back, uh, is what Jack says. Uh, Jack's gonna tell Jack tells Kate, like, the reason I'm here is because things are intense at the caves. Claire is going wild, she's gonna have the baby soon. Everybody's on pins and needles. Uh, very, very uh, well, tense. T-
2: Jack's gonna claim that he doesn't see needles on Claire, so. Maybe poor choice of phrasing. Yeah,
1: poor choice of phrasing. Uh, Charlie in the jungle is going to come to Claire. Claire is writing in her diary. Charlie is trying to guess what's going on in the diary. Uh, Dear diary, still on the bloody island. Today I swallowed a bug. Love, Claire. Uh, So
2: this is uh, totally a point out of the Mike Bloom flirtation book. Of, like, try to use your cheeky sense of humor to, like, kind of intrude on someone's privacy. (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> Jeez. Terrifying. No, it's not that bad, but it's like, you know, if, if someone's, like, would be, uh, you know, if, like, Angela was, like, typing on her computer in our college lounge, I would be like, I love Mike, he's the best, and he has the brightest apple-faced cheeks in the world, I could pick him off and make him into a pie, like... Come up with with stupid stuff like that. So it's not necessarily intruding on privacy, but it's more so, I guess, interrupting people while they're in their private moment to be stupid.
1: Incredible, I love it. Do you come to these people with two cups of fake tea? Because I can't imagine this is actual tea that Charlie comes to Claire with.
2: I, again, we're going back to Charlie's play school kitchen.
1: Do you think uh, you at a certain point Claire's like Charlie? You have an issue. Uh, let me explain i'm a drug addict you keep you keep bringing me imaginary sustenance and i appreciate it but it's also not real and it's starting to get strange
2: i mean you would say that but we're gonna see claire uh, nurse an imaginary child several seasons down the line so maybe charlie inspired a quality in her that yeah. she's going to use much later yeah
1: prelude to a squirrel baby uh charlie says the tea is what separates us from these savage yanks Uh, Charlie Pace, more of a Mets fan than a Yankees guy. (laughs)
2: Yeah, Uh, listen, at this point, the Red Sox weren't winning the World Series, so anybody but them.
1: Oh, my God. Antonio Mazzaro said something about Yankee Doodle Dandy in a recent podcast that really killed me uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, This is on the Mr. Robot Season 4 premiere podcast. If you haven't watched Mr. Robot, I would advise you to go do that just to listen to the podcast because... I laughed harder at that Yankee Doodle Dandy joke than I've laughed at maybe anything ever on a podcast, uh, Wandoff's included. It was really, really great. Um, wow. Anyway, he tells, uh, Charlie tells Claire that he's been having recurring dreams where he's driving a bus, his teeth are falling out, his mom's in the back eating biscuits, and everything smells like bacon. Um, sounds like a much better dream than the one he has in Fire Plus Water a year from now.
2: Yeah, I would say that uh, he's going to be wishing for old bacon smelling biscuit eating mom by the time season two comes around.
1: But what a nightmare if your teeth are falling out and you can't like chew the bacon and it all yeah, smells yeah, so good. That sucks. Gum
2: gum all that bacon. Your mom's like, I can't give you any biscuits because you have no teeth, son.
1: Yeah. Uh, boring bananas would be really good then as like baby food. Like you can mash it all together and just gum it down.
2: Yeah, you do wonder exactly how Aaron got baby food. I know that the hatch is going to become a big thing in season two, but maybe they had to mash up those boring and bananas to create some uh, island gerbers. Yeah,
1: Aaron definitely got papaya gerbers uh, for the first few weeks of his life. I'm l- surprised
2: he didn't turn into a papaya. Yeah. I know that you uh, babies have the capacity to turn a certain color. My brother-in-law apparently only ate like squash and yellow zucchini for the first few months of his life and turned yellow.
1: Wow, it's wild. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't call Aaron uh, baby papaya head instead of turnip head.
2: <laughs> not, not doesn't roll off the tongue as
1: much. Though knowing
2: Charlie, he's probably picking imaginary turnips off a tree and comparing it to the size of Aaron's head.
1: <laughs> is that what it is? It's like, what are you guys talking about? The island's filled with turnips. Everyone's like, hey, Charlie, we got to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this idea of Charlie just being the
2: bastion of imagination on the island. Listen, <laughs> so we'll get him, get him my chariot, and then unicorns
1: will take us away. <laughs> Everybody's got these superpowers, right? I mean, like Hurley's going to be able to talk to the dead. Uh, why can't Charlie be uh, filled with imaginary sustenance? Is it because <laughs> like he can't do that and be a bloody rock god at the same time?
2: Yeah, he has to be either an imagination god or a rock god. You've gotta give the island something, Charlie, I for guess. the island to cure your lack of
1: imagination. I might give him I might sacrifice the rock god, to be honest.
2: Anyway. I mean, yeah, after the after the last time that, that you invoked your rock god powers, yeah, for uh, the community's sake. Maybe that's why he swapped over into becoming an imagination god.
1: I think the Invisifood is a is a better recurring gag, but you guys can tell us. Uh, anyway, he's just trying to relate. He's trying to help her out. He says, like, I think about you, Claire. This place is intense for anybody, but it must be so hard for you to be here without your family, without your friends. You and I could be friends. I could be your friend. We don't have to do each other's hair, but if you need to talk to someone about stuff, like, it could be me. And Claire's like, eh pass uh I was like oh, all right and like he gets up and like she's like oh i was just rude and he's like it's cool claire it's cool
2: yeah he's gonna go uh i guess drown his sorrows in some imaginary chocolate bars or something uh yeah i mean initially watching her rebuff him is a little it's a little sad because we're we're shipping charlie and claire at this point but knowing what we know of claire and specifically you know, when she let a man into her life with her soon-to-be child, he left her. And you can imagine how much paranoia she has with this idea of, yes, they're on an island, but what if Charlie he ta- she takes up Charlie's offer and he changes his mind, much like Thomas did? So I completely understand where she's coming from. And quite frankly, you know, she's frightened somebody if she's having a lot of, uh, you know, vivid... Not dreams, but you know, at this point, Ethan's been injecting her with a bunch of stuff. You could imagine that she's a bit fearful about any guy who's basically approaching her at this point, even someone who's uh, as kind as Charlie
1: is. Hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, and I, and I like Charlie's reaction too. Where he's like, "It's cool, it's cool. Let me get out of here." Uh, you know, I think that the whole thing is as as respectful as it gets. Um, we get a flashback. Uh, it's Claire and her friend, whose name I don't know if we ever if we ever I- get. I
2: think it's Rachel.
1: Rachel. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a Rachel in the guest star cast list, Jenny Chang, as Rachel. So this is Claire's friend, Rachel, who I don't believe we will ever see or hear from again. But Rachel and Claire, they're going to see the psychic. Here he is, Ray Malkin. Uh, and Rachel's like, Which ah. is,
2: we have Ray Malkin, and we have Ray Mullen- <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I, they just like, all right, uh did they just like run out of Australian names after two Australia Oh, uh, I episodes? guess it's
1: I guess it's Richard Malkin. I have it written down as Ray Malkin. Uh,
2: you got the Peach Man on the mine. I got the
1: Peach Man on the vine. I forgot about the papaya man, uh, Richard Malkin. Yeah, any any observable uh food preferences for Richard Malkin that will help us uh distinguish between him and Ray Mullen.
2: Uh, anything he likes is mystery flavored.
1: Richard Malkin, Ray Mullen is like the Uma Oprah of season one of Lost. Like this is yeah, tough,
2: or, or like the Dylan
1: McDermott. Dermot. Oh uh, yeah, it's a lot like that. Throw Doug Ray Scott into the mix, and you really got a party. Uh, but yeah, so Richard, uh, Richard Malkin. Let's just call him the psychic. How about that? Let's just make or, it Or easier. Malkin, or Malkin in the middle. Uh, that <laughs> he's uh, he's going to be reading Claire's palms. Uh, he could tell that she's pregnant. That's great. He's like, when did you find out? Uh, people are really angry at uh, Malkin's Australian accent. I hope that they're not that angry at my attempt at impersonating his Australian accent. I mean, uh, it's an
2: homage to how bad he is, so I think it's it's properly done.
1: But I think that nobody is going to be as upset as Malkin himself because, like, he's holding her hands. And very quickly, he's like, you got to go. You can't be here. This is bad. Don't want to read your palms. Your palms are sweaty. They're weird. They're clammy. They're cold. This is terrible. You have to go. Uh, And Claire is like deeply offended. uh, But she stalks off. And we will come to find out a little while later why exactly uh, this is all uh, so awkward. Um, Just a little while. I mean, I guess I was, why exactly? Definitely not why exactly. We We get some possible explanation for why this is so uncomfortable.
2: And you know what? A bit of a connection to her soon-to-be father figure slash friend figure when she says, I don't need someone telling me what's going to happen or how to live my life like another version of Don't Tell Me What I Can't Do, which Don't will be said in Australia. Uh, you know, I'll hop, skip, and a jump away at some point.
1: Don't Tell Me What I Can and Can't Do. Later that night on the island, once again, somebody is coming to Claire. Uh, so they put their hand on her mouth. She starts screaming. You see all these flashes of these sharp objects, not the, the show with Amy Adams. Uh, and uh, we, we see, uh, we of course know it's Ethan. Eventually, she starts screaming bloody murder again. Everybody rallies around her. Charlie and Hurley go off to, to do a perimeter sweep. Definitely the guys you want on perimeter sweep duty. Uh, and Jack is going to tell Ethan, go get some water. And Ethan's like, yeah, sure. Okay, definitely it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Yeah, I'll wash Claire spit off my hands while I do that. Yeah, Jack's like, I didn't, I didn't accuse you of doing anything. He said, Ethan's like, oh, no, 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 yeah, 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 you're right. Sorry. Uh, but <laughs> I'll By the way, uh, Claire, are you going for any walks alone anytime soon? Just wondering. Yeah, just curious. Uh, Clara says, Someone had a needle and s- tried to stab me with it, and she gives a couple of signature line reads here. He was trying to hurt my baby!
2: No, I believe it's baby! Baby! Yeah, because that's the immortal, like, onomatopoeia writing of baby that Lost fans have done due to Emily de Not only pronunciation, but the number of times she's going to say it over the course of Lost.
1: You hurt my baby! Uh, alright. So, that's going down, and everyone's on high alert, and... It gives Hurley an idea, uh, and he's going to pitch an idea to Jack based on this latest assault. Let's bring in sound number four.
0: We have to round the entire perimeter, man. We saw or heard anything. Uh Uh-uh, nada. Everyone was asleep. So, I had an idea. I'm out here looking for some psycho with Scott and Steve, right? And I'm realizing... Where the hell are Scott and Steve? I'm not following you. Look, if I was a cop and some woman got attacked, we'd canvass, right? Knock on doors, find witnesses. But we do not even have doors. Hurley, really, you're not helping me understand. Where- Look, we don't know who's living here and who's still at the beach. I mean, we didn't even know each other. My name isn't Hurley. It's Hugo Reyes. Hurley's just a nickname I have. All right? Why? I'm not telling. The point is, we gotta find out who everyone is. You wanna start a census? Yeah, registry, you know, names, what people look like, who's related to who. I mean, we start laying down the law, maybe people stop attacking each other. It seems like someone's getting punched or stabbed or something every other day here. We gotta find out who did this to her.
2: I do love the meta aspect of Hurley's last night, and it's true. I mean, Jack is going to be treating Claire, and that's like, I think, the third episode in a row that starts off with Jack treating somebody medically speaking so i think jack is also acknowledging the ridiculousness of island er at this point
1: yeah i just love you go back through lost knowing where the show goes you know that hurley will land as the protector of the island by the end of this thing hurley's the best leader on the island from the beginning Like What what he's saying here is like, hey, we don't have any safety procedures in place. This is the guy who is both simultaneously concerned about we are not having enough fun, and we are also not nearly safe enough. (laughs) We need to take care of both of these things right now. And Jack, you're just too busy being an alpha a-hole to really actually do good work being concerned about either of these things. Uh, So let me take it upon myself to take care of that stuff. Uh, So here's Hurley. He's coming up with a... uh, his own manifest destiny,
2: yeah, and i the the writing behind Rays by Another is so much fun, knowing what the f- final twist of the episode is, where Hurley is going to reveal his name of Hugo Reyes to Jack, and it's a foreshadowing that, hey, you know what, there are some people on this island who might not have the name that they claim that they do. And, you know, it might set up a red herring with Sawyer down the line, uh, and obviously you're going to have Ethan later on as well. But I feel like that's a great way to introduce that concept in a very lighthearted, you know, flash-in-the-pan way.
1: So uh, Charlie's going to come to Claire. He's going to put a blanket around Claire he says, if you want to go to sleep, I'll be here all night. I won't let anyone get to yeah.
2: you. Where did they get, me. like, the Native American blanket that you see in, like, a ski lodge? I didn't notice that.
1: I just thought it was, like, another airline blanket.
2: No, no, no. It's, like, a big—it's got, like, a pattern to it. I don't know if someone was coming back from, I don't know, summering or wintering in Melbourne or something. But, yeah, it seemed a little out of place. So maybe I don't think it it's, was, it's like- that
1: ridiculous to consider that somebody brought, like, uh, a more specific blanket on the flight from Sydney to LAX. That's a long flight, Mike. People were preparing for uh they're trying to get some shut eye on there. Bring well, a security maybe, blanket across the world.
2: Maybe they use it to pack the mason jars so that they didn't
1: break. Ah, <laughs> that's a good call. That could be where that's coming from. Uh we get a flashback, and here he is. Thomas the tank engine is leaving town. Do 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 Chugga, 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 chugga. All right, so Thomas is gonna leave. Claire, this day-drinking, drape-hating douchebag, uh, who says, I can't do this, Claire. It's just like, oh, wait, so let me just be clear about this. I'm I'm several months pregnant at this point, and you're just bailing. You're leaving me. I think it's only three months at this point. He's out after three months, Mike? All right, so... Uh, Defend your boy. Come get your boy uh, if you can. Well, I'm not, so, no, he's, not
3: he's not
2: my boy. He's you not made not my it boy. this way. I'm not going to get my boy. I'm the Michael that will leave his boy behind. Uh, no, Asher, don't say that. Uh, but speaking of which, so I will be fully candid right here. The thoughts that Thomas is expressing, and I'm gonna put aside all the horrible things he says about you know the accusation his accusation she has of purposely not taking the pill to you know get pregnant to trap him is sort of what he's accusing her of. But I will fully admit. When I found out that Angela was pregnant, uh, I had several panic attacks, uh, and my thinking came from a similar line of thinking as Thomas's. Quite honestly, I think any expecting father is going to have a thought along the lines of Thomas—not I should leave—but thoughts along the lines of "there's so much to do," and you know, you you get used to your life a certain way. I was very happy with with the life that I had, and I am so happy now with asher i would never could imagine him not being a part of my life but at the time i was someone who was very reticent towards change it's something that has really fueled my issues with anxiety for the vast majority of my life i'm hesitant to to pick up roots and, and devote my life to to new things when i feel comfortable in my current situation and so when you hear thomas say things like you know now it's real and, you know, I I have to do something every minute for the past three months. It's a, it's a really tough paradigm to shift to for any expecting parent. So I feel where he's coming from there. However, the way he actionizes that philosophy is obviously a no-go. So I do not condone his actions, but I feel like as an expecting father back in the day, I wouldn't lie uh, in admitting that... I certainly had similar thoughts at some point during the pregnancy phase.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's really understandable that like such a such a seismic shift in your life as bringing a new life into the world is going to is going to rattle you and is going to be something that fills you with a lot of intensity, especially if you're somebody who is inclined towards anxiety and panic attacks and, and things of that nature. And certainly, Mike, I, I very deeply relate to the idea of like, I don't want to change anything. If I change things, everything suddenly becomes very scary. And like yep. you know, hopping off of that uh, you know sturdy ground for taking a risk on like potentially like uh, you know hot lava floor. Like no, this is going to burn me up. This is terrible. Um, like I, I definitely have lived a lot of my life uh, feeling that way. So I, I absolutely get that. Uh, At the same time, I assume he didn't just, like, burst home day-drinking, raving about your paintings. What about my paintings? And then talked about your daddy abandonment issues. (sighs) And, like, basically, like, throwing a shit fit because she's put up the drapes. And because she says, we've got dinner with Karen or whoever, Rachel, tonight. You know? Maybe he just doesn't like Karen.
2: Uh, And listen... If only Claire had known Kate before the island, she uh, wouldn't need to buy those drapes. She could get someone to make those DIY. <laughs>
1: yeah, those Dharma initiative yourself. Uh... <laughs> so I, I get where you're coming from. I think I just hate Thomas so
2: much. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, what he does is absolutely despicable. And the fact that he also does it like while mentioning Claire's father issues, which is another interesting little pin, given what we know about Claire, and that she doesn't exactly have I guess you would call him daddy abandonment issues unless you call dying abandonment. Because <laughs> <that's, laughs> I guess it's the ultimate abandonment. Because at this point, Claire's the thing that Claire believes about her father is that her father died when she was two. That's what Carol Littleton told her to keep Christian Shepherd away from her life. So, like, I don't know if she's either lied to Thomas or Thomas is just horribly digging much like a quarter inch of fingernail into Claire with these horrible jabs at her family life. It's also weird. Cause like, it seemed like with his paintings, like that he was living there. Did he just leave his yeah, own loft his and left forever?
1: Yeah. yeah. He, he, cause she moved into his loft. So she, he bails on the loft. Uh, he's probably staying with friends or something, or he probably kicked her out. Eventually would be my bet because he's such a douche. Yeah. Uh, Change the locks or something. He, the John Locks. I listen. I I I don't want to minimalize the the difficulty of of bringing a life into the world, especially if it's like unexpected in the way that Thomas and Claire have uh, have have done here. Uh, but he's just a piece of poop, Mike. This guy.
2: <laughs> oh just, yeah, he's a big old. He's Turdy Thomas. He really is. He's
1: Turdy Thomas for sure. I just have a hard time finding redemption in this man, uh, and I think that there are there are uh, you can't abandon Claire Littleton like that. Uh, like this is abandonment abandonment what what happened with her with her father at least as the legend goes that 's not abandonment that 's death that's <laughs> that 's life and death sir uh so screw you, Thomas, and the horse you rode into town on uh that you painted, and somehow brought out of a mural and into <laughs> life and were able to, to ride yeah. on. Like and then the Claire had seat. a
2: dream about pony riding yes. that Jack was very fond of. Yes.
1: All right. On the beach, Hurley is going to start doing his canvassing uh, of the survivors of Oceanic 815. You could just already see the scene coming together, Mike, when Rodney Sesto and Billy Wallace reunite in a podcast down the line with Rich Filiberto. What it's going to be like when they are finally giving all of their details to Hurley Hugo Reyes uh, as he comes to John Locke. And what the hell is John Locke doing, by the way? Okay,
2: so this is my theory. And I really feel like this is going to be Can another... Can you just fish. also
1: like vividly describe what's happening in case people didn't watch the episode? Just to paint a picture of it and then give me your explanation, because I'm so confused.
2: So he has what looks like a hide in front of him. It looks like he has the tail end of a leaf, and he's going to rub the leaf on the hide, and he's also going to throw some sand on it. I feel like he's tanning it. Now... Knowing by my skin tone, I know next to nothing about tanning, both Animal Hide and my own. This is definitely going to be another fish-whacking thing, where we have no idea what we're talking about survivalist-wise, and someone's going to have to correct us. But my leading theory at this point is that he is tanning the hide, probably for some sort of purpose, maybe to, uh, I don't know, you can make like a canteen out of the hide, you can make clothes out of the hide... I don't know, but tanning is what he's doing at the moment, in my point of view.
1: Uh, It's just so strange. Like, he throws like sand on it and then he's just like rubbing like an aloe plant leaf on everything. Uh, It just looks very strange. But Terry O'Quinn does it so confidently that you believe that whatever he's doing is of the utmost importance to everybody's survival.
2: Yeah. And uh, I mean, Locke is also a little off kilter, I guess, both in his tanning techniques and also his humor with Hurley, because for being one of the most jocular characters, Hurley is not really receptive to the jokes that Locke is throwing out.
1: No, not really. Uh, Like They'll have better interactions down the line, but they'll also have some tense interactions through their entire time knowing each other. Like Locke is basically going to take Hurley hostage at one point in season four because Hurley knows where Jacob's cabin is. That's like the final time those guys ever really interact. Uh, So maybe Hurley is right in getting away from Locke in this moment in time where he's like, hey, lady, I know I already talked to you. I just kind of want to get away from Locke right now.
2: Uh, and actually, apparently, according to Jorge Garcia, I think he said on his podcast that apparently that line was improvised. Uh, so good on Jorge for getting uh, get, getting one in on the final cut.
1: Very, very good. Uh, and yeah, they, it doesn't come up yet at that point that uh, that Hurley owns John Locke's box company. That doesn't come up here.
2: Yeah, you he should have asked for his occupation. I don't okay. know how uh, how candid Locke would have been, but that would have been a great point of conversation.
1: Okay, Tustin, California. Uh, but I don't know if the box company is even on Hurley's radar. Do, do you know like, Randy Nations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's really uh, drowning in LVP points right now. Uh, all right, so elsewhere on the beach, Jack, Kate, and Charlie are talking. Power Trio, the OGs, are uh, are reuniting. Uh, and Jack is floating at his theory of like, you know, I got to be honest, I don't really believe Claire. Uh, don't buy it. Don't buy the story. Textbook anxiety, nothing more. Pregnant women have lucid dreams. This is all... Uh, I I I don't believe the victim at all. And uh, Charlie is like, "That's your si- that's your sister. Believe your sister." He doesn't say that. Uh, yeah. yeah, but Jack but is I, saying he's he says that, that. Why would somebody be trying to hurt Claire's baby? I don't know because I mean, there's like 40 people there and you don't know any of them. So who and also knows? there was the there's this guy named
2: Sawyer who does some pretty shady stuff. I know he's on the rise. But yeah, he's st- still be doing some crazy stuff. I, I think that with Jack, what I've been observing from a writing perspective, I would love to have a medical professional chime in 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 the other section, because how much is Jack supposed to know as a surgeon? You know, it feels like he is, you know, reporting a lot on Claire. I don't know exactly how much, you know, OB schooling you get in medical school, but I I do wonder how much he actually does know about Claire, uh, Claire's condition, or how much he's just sort of like talking out of his patootie here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how much patootie talking is going on here as well. Uh I think you gotta get fairly deep. You gotta get very deep before you get as specific as spinal surgery. So I assume that he has uh he's he's done his homework. He's gone to school for a lot of this stuff. And also if you just uh you you know, you do the the, the leaping from the fact that he's Christian Shepard's son, so there are high expectations on, on Jack uh that he would
2: <laughs> Jack You've got to deliver a baby.
1: Yeah, you just, you're island. not
2: You're just, just not cut out for it, to cut the umbilical cord. Yeah. I, I do like in this scene, uh, Charlie says to Jack, you know everything that's going on with everyone. And I like this idea that while Hurley is conducting a literal census, Charlie thinks that Jack is like the human census for the island.
1: The human census peed.
2: Uh, oh, God, no, please. Yeah. Don't, put, don't put those trio in mind with me with the human census peed. It's already a- done. But there's also some great, uh, again, foreshadowing here, or I guess uh, irony, where Jack's like, you know, uh, there's no, in- if she goes into early labor, there's no instruments or monitors or anesthetic. It's like, you just like wander a few paces to the left, and you can probably find something that has all that in there.
1: Yeah. If we don't find any medical equipment, she's going to die alone. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Charlie's already being like, it's not in her head. You're being an a hole. Uh, and uh, in a little while, Jack's going to come to Claire and, like, throw this out at her, and she's going to be very offended by everything, and it's clearly going to fuel the the next episode, right? Like, the, the fact that Jack gets this all so terribly wrong uh, is going to put us on one of the, the great, earliest, classic uh, Jack, uh, like, steadfastly, dead-set, eagle-eyed, focused on fixing a, a, a virtually unfixable problem. Uh, so we'll get to that in a little bit. From this scene, uh, Hurley's canvassing tour continues. I'd actually like to, to spy on it. I'd like to listen in on it because it's not the first time we're ever hearing from this guy, but it's our meatiest conversation with Ethan Rom yet. Hey, Lance. Sorry, Lance. Your name's Lance, right?
0: Ethan. Dude, that's right. Lance, little skinny guy with glasses and red hair. I can see how you'd confuse us Sorry dude Lots of names and faces It's Pretty pathetic huh I think after a couple of weeks on the island With the same people we'd all know each other Yeah you're right you would think so So uh, we're doing this list You know survivors, names, home addresses, stuff like that Okay well you already have my name not Lance Definitely not uh, Last name? Rom Rom, R-O-M That's right Great where are you from? Ethan Rom Ontario Right on Love Canada. Great, (laughs) uh... Why don't you do it? Thanks for your time, dude. Hey, what's this for? Oh, it's nothing. Just, uh, you know, thought it'd be a good idea.
2: I think we found a rule of loss, Josh. Nobody is from Canada. Yeah. If somebody says they're from Canada, whether it's Kate in Australia or Ethan here, dig a little deeper... Because they're definitely lie. not from the Great White North.
1: Uh, in an alternate timeline, too, as Hurley's walking away, like Ethan just runs up behind him and kills him. I'm yeah, very glad exactly. that didn't happen. Yeah, what's this for? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just rounding up the names of everybody so we can make sure there are no secret spies in our midst. And he's like, right on, and then he kills Hurley. Uh, uh, glad that didn't happen.
2: I'm glad that we got a little because I feel like Ethan had what a couple of lines in the rabbit scene from last episode, but not a lot until not a lot. now. Uh, makes me want to wish for Lance. Lance could have been the new Sarah Stripes as like Rich, the we- pay attention to Lance the- as like the n- the newest Weasley kid who apparently crashed <laughs> on
1: <down> the island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the forgotten Weasley. Uh, yeah, I just I I really love William Mapother as Ethan Rom, and this is the last time we're or not the very last time, but the penultimate time that we're gonna get any sort of like semblance of innocence about Ethan Rahm. And I think that uh, the fact that everything comes together with Ethan so quickly. Um, even though he's like the outlier and he's now like a character that's being fleshed out a little bit more when everybody else is somebody who we know to a certain degree. So if we're on the hunt for somebody who is not part of the Oceanic crew, this guy is going to be a top suspect because he's suddenly like getting that visibility spike to put it in survivor editing terms. Mm. um, I, I think the fact that it, it all comes to a head within the space of this episode makes it very forgivable for me.
2: Uh, I don't know. You think you think a guy named Ethan would go all the way if we're going by survivor editing terms?
1: You would think so as well. Uh, so after this scene, Jack is going to go to Claire and be like, hey, no one's coming for you. This is all in your head. It's all scary, I'm sure. You must be really upset, but let me just give you some sleeping pills and you're going to be fine. She's like, excuse me? He's like, no, they're not going to hurt. It's going to be fine. She's like, sleeping pills? That's your solution? yeah and it's and just this a mild is why he's additive this sedative. is why he's a surgeon and not like a physician of consulting with patients the way that jack deals with claire here uh if you we were looking at it the uh, the prism of today this is especially bad but it wasn't even great in 2004
2: no but i mean it's to your point before it's really interesting looking at this as not necessarily doctor and patient but as siblings yes and to watch you know him try to come at her from what he thinks is like, you know, doing the best for her and her sort of bristling against that. It's also really interesting looking at Jack's perspective from the angle of post-White Rabbit, where, you know, he was believing that he was hallucinating that he had worked himself so hard. And so he probably thinks it's in within the realm of possibility that, like, because Claire is so stressed and anxious for being a freaking pregnant person on an island— that she could be hallucinating things. So while we do, I think, uh, take jabs at Jack for his thinking here, I could see him relaying his own personal experience with being overworked and overwhelmed to Claire's experiences here, even though that mapping uh, is not is not something that even Sayid could do.
1: So one more flashback. This is post-breakup with Thomas. Claire is going to go and visit Mr. Malkin. Uh, Richard Malkin, Ray Mullen. Richard Malkin, Ray Mullen. She's going to go to the psychic Richard Malkin. uh, And this time he's willing to do the psychic reading. Uh, And she's like, so what happened last time? What was the problem? He says, I saw something blurry. Uh, Blurry with points?
2: Yeah. I mean, maybe. Uh, I think that... uh, (laughs) I think that, are you asking, is that an, a Lucille Ostero reference from Arrested it was, Development? It was, it was. It oh, okay, better. amazing.
1: So Claire could've should have just
2: taken those points and ridden Eliza Minnelli <laughs> yeah. instead of riding that plane.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, it could have been better. Uh, he says, blurry is bad. Uh, and so he then takes her hands and he has his vision and he tells her what to do next. And it's a very specific set of things that he has to tell Claire. Let's hear what he has to say. With sound number six.
3: I can tell you. This is important. Okay. It is crucial that you, yourself, raise this child.
4: You mean with Thomas? Is it the, easy? The, for... the father
3: of this child will play no part in its life, nor yours. Thank God.
0: So what exactly are you
3: saying? This child, parented by anyone else, anyone other than you. Danger surrounds this baby. Danger? you nature your spirit your goodness must be an influence in the development of this child
0: look if if thomas and i don't you know, get back together i'm putting this baby up for adoption i just i just wanted to find out what would give the baby the happiest life
3: there is no happy life not for this child not without you I, I don't. There, there can't be another. You mustn't allow another to raise your baby. Okay,
4: great. Um, thanks for taking my two hundred.
3: No, 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 take it, Miss Littleton. I am begging you, just to consider.
4: I can't raise this child
3: by myself. You have to listen to me. Okay, thanks for your time and my money, Miss Littleton. Please, the baby needs your protection. <laughs>
2: What do we think about Malkin's approach here? Do you think Do you think calmness would have prevailed?
1: Yeah, he needed to go to survivor school with Boston, Robin, Sandra. You need to learn how to how to be cool under pressure. There,
2: uh, Malkin, you got to go into the <laughs> other the other. Gonna go to Ray Mullins' ranch, pick some peaches, bring them back to us.
1: That might get confusing because I don't know how to keep track of your names. Yeah, Ray, uh, Richard Malkin, and Ray <laughs> Mullen are the Scott and Steve. They of really Australia. are. And I'm here in Australia with Richard,
2: M- Richard Malkin, and Ray Mullen, and I'm thinking, who the hell are Richard Malkin and Ray Mullen?
1: Who's Malkin?
2: <laughs> so, in terms of thinking ahead here, Josh, I mean, this is another thing with, I mean. There's a point in time where obviously Aaron is quite literally raised by another in the form of Kate. And even when Kate goes back to the island, it is Carol Littleton who ends up taking care of her grandson. So, I mean, even though we assume that Claire is eventually going to get brought off the island to assumingly take care of Aaron, does that mean this is true? I mean, like, is this yet another example of how Claire's uh, Claire's storyline sort of just goes off the runway completely?
1: There's so many instances of this. This is one uh potentially. There's also the fact that uh Charlie's going to let himself die because Desmond had a vision of Claire getting on a helicopter and safely leaving the island and that flat out never happens. Charlie I mean, un- dies un- unless, for unless nothing de- <laughs> unless
2: Desmond confuses a helicopter for like a broken apart plane.
1: That does not happen straight up. And because it's so emotional, we often forget that Charlie died for no reason. <laughs> 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 Ultimately. Uh, so yeah, there's like a few things like that uh, that happen here. I, I don't know. This is the stuff of Lost 2, Mike. Uh, does Aaron grow up to become some sort of uh, some some antichrist? Uh, is he like a, a Damien type? A Damien Lindelof uh, is what we get out of Aaron in the long haul. Or is it because... Kate knew Claire, and by knowing Claire, the influence of Claire then channels through Kate and goes to Aaron for his first few years of his life. Because uh, Claire gets on the island, uh, she comes to cross paths with Jack Shepard, her brother, and Jack is going to have an influence on the first couple of years of Aaron's life. Is it going to be after copious amounts of post-island PTSD treatment? Claire is going to be able to tap back in to some of the warmth and empathy that she had so naturally before she became a squirrel baby mongerer uh, that she's going to be able to put that on to Aaron. I don't know. The show kind of loses some interest in this to some degree, I think. Um, yeah. Or maybe we'll we'll, you know, keep tracking this and we'll, we'll come to find that our opinions of it change the deeper we go into law. So th- those are my feelings on it right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, it wouldn't be the first time that Lost sets up a really weird storyline involving a child and then just completely decides not to acknowledge it uh, at a certain point.
1: A lot of spinning plates, you know, forgivable by my standards. Yeah. There's a lot going on on Lost, and this is a very difficult show to make with a, with a very high volume of people watching it. Everybody's looking for you to drop a plate, uh, so if you drop a few but you keep the vast majority up... I'm feeling like you did pretty well here. I'm very yeah, forgiving and, and, and towards my lost baby.
2: And who's to say if they did keep the Aaron storyline in that it wouldn't involve some sort of like really hokey, you know, bad type of uh, thing they would have to shoehorn in there. So if it meant, yeah, you know, know, eschewing this plot line in favor of embracing some other characters or some other plot lines that are inherently more interesting and of better quality, then I think, <laughs> much like Charlie, it's a, it's a worthy sacrifice
1: uh later uh sometime later like some months later claire gets a phone call in the middle of the night and it's richard Malkin uh, still and she's like oh my god richard Malkin, no i'm so
2: i'm so intrigued i guess the phone book but like how did he get her phone number how did she get his address is the australian directories just very is it like is like early census levels of personal information where they can just very easily look up where people live and how to call
1: them I also love the idea that like he's just been like calling her, cold calling her in the night for months, and like she's still picking up the phone in the night. And,
2: I could uh, also imagine like him trying to like trick her, like, uh oh, hello, oh this is Blockbuster,
1: <laughs> pizza delivery,
2: yeah, <laughs> uh, candygram,
1: yeah, open the door. <laughs> I am your singing telegram. Uh, yeah, she just doesn't uh, she doesn't want to hear it. He says, "Great danger will follow you. I've got a plan. Listen to the plan." She hangs up. Uh, back on the island. Uh, Claire has marched off into the jungle because she's so offended by Jack, uh, and Charlie is going to team up with her. Uh, She says, Jack tried to dope me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Not good. Not good, and I love all the terminology
2: between that and Hurley said before on the cliff that, uh, that he hoofed all around the perimeter of the island. It's like... Still mid uh, early 2000s, so like there's still some uh 90s parlance in there. So I, I am loving what makes its way onto the island
1: back on the beach. Hurley is continuing the census crusade. Uh, he, he meets up with Shannon and Boone. He asks Shannon for her ASL. Uh, she says tw- she's 20 years old, she's from Crap Hole Island. Uh, hey,
2: Shannon, some very nice people have lived there. Okay, yeah, do you imagine uh, if Ethan was there? He's like, Oh, well, oh, excuse me. Crap
1: hole island She's the first to go Yeah she's gotta go Uh, The second Uh, And then Boone uh, says What's up with the Maybe we don't like you Setting up the Patriot Act out here Island Patriot Act man And Shannon says Oh he's a liberal
2: (laughs) Could you imagine like Hurley's like "All right, when I get home I'm gonna use my money Using these ideas Of getting personal information I'm gonna invent something Called Facebook Yeah It's gonna take
1: the world by storm Thanks to you Boone Yeah uh, the Storm podcast that does uh, their their great podcast about loss. They just wrapped up their their first season. They had a great interview with your friend in mine, Joe Garfine, as well as your best friend in mind, Damon Lindelof, <laughs> uh, which was really really a must listen. If you haven't listened to it yet, I, I strongly advise that you go and check that out. Uh, but on the Storm, uh, Joanna Robinson and and her colleagues, they often will do like a, a look back at uh what's like the most 2004 thing from Lost. I really try to shy away from that here because they do that so well, but this Patriot Act thing is like yeah. this is very telling of the time.
2: <laughs> Just like, But I would also that? kind of say not to inject too much of that in here, but like Boone's kind of right here. <laughs> sure. it, but a little he's a little preachy about little it preachy. given I'm the preachy. situation, but like I think I think 2019 America, if they watched this scene, they would be more in line with Boone than they
1: would be with Shannon. I think that's probably true. Uh, who knows? Divisive times. Hard to say. Man of, fi- mm. man of faith, man of science uh, makes uh, the well, I, I would say Shannon might be canceled beautiful. for using the term rape caves. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. That is such a great line. I am so not moving to the rape caves, she says when she finds out what happened to Claire uh Boone tells hurley look this could all be so much simpler if you just find the manifest everybody's names are on it you'll be able to cross-reference everything it's gonna go a lot smoother and uh hurley says who's got the manifest and of course we know who has the manifest uh abc has the manifest yes uh, josh
2: dallas comes out of the jungle and starts talking with him about like yeah we have our own little plane
1: situation going on here Uh, But it's Sawyer, of course, and so Hurley is going to go to Sawyer, and not for the first time are they going to interact, but this is the first that I can recall so far really meaningful Hurley and Sawyer interaction. And so just as we got our first like really meaningful Hurley and Locke interaction that really does speak to the vibes of those two characters across their relationship with each other, I think that this is a great first real interaction between Hurley and Sawyer that speaks to their dynamic moving forward. Let's listen to it.
0: I'm just going to lay it out straight Okay, you do that I hear you had the flight manifest And I need it, once you to give it to me That's so Now, you could do what you normally do When someone asks for something Tell me to screw off Screw off Or you could just Give it to me Because, dude You could use the points Oh well, gosh, you sure know how to butter a man up, Stay Puff. It's a gift. <laughs> manifest in a brown suitcase. Take it,
2: Josh. Why does Sawyer have the manifest? I have a theory, but I want to see if you have any.
1: Uh, I would just imagine it's it's information. You know, it's a thing to collect. He likes mm. to collect stuff, and he likes to sell the stuff. Uh, he likes to be in a position where people have to come through him for supplies. The manifest may come in handy, but at the very least, it's a it's a thing. He also loves to read. So if he's done with Watership Down, which I have not made any further progress on, uh, then, you know, he's got the manifest to read.
2: Yeah, this like reading the phone book after reading, I don't know, Treasure Island. My theory is that Sawyer's lifeblood at this point is the idea of a nickname. He loves giving nicknames. He needs source material. Ooh. I think Sawyer purposely took the manifest and up late every night, he's scouting that manifest being like, okay, uh, Calvin Hodges. Uh, Calvin, Dalvin, Falvin. Come on, Sawyer. come up with something here. Gotta come up with some sort of nickname.
1: What's up, Calvin and the Chipmunks? You know, something uh, like
2: that. I nailed it.
1: Yeah. Oh, look at you, Calvin and Hobbes.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I think that he needs a way to be able to really dig into these people instead of just out of uh, pure visual appearances. So I think the name is, is able to hit them where they, it hurts most. Speaking of which, I mean, Saw- Sawyer here compared to Sawyer and Confidence Man is like night and day. And I think uh, what Hurley's hinting towards might be uh, the, the reason why.
1: Well, I think Sawyer's, like, feeling like, okay, maybe people like me a little bit more after I gave up the goods at the golf tournament. So if I just, like, hand this off to Hurley, like, I'll keep rising the ranks, potentially. Yeah, but uh, Sawyer,
2: do not give up those sunglasses, because you might be the only person that can pull off those shades. Great
1: look. Great look. Very Boogie Nights, I feel like. It's, <laughs> you know, Rodney Sesto. let yes, Rodney coming, Sesto. <laughs> coming for him. Uh, I mean, he Sawyer does ditch them eventually. I think. I don't think I don't remember seeing these glasses on him for a long no, time. No, well, he's going to so. he's
2: going to have another pair of glasses. Maybe he's he's sort of like pushing past his obvious uh, vision issues. To just go for style points and he realizes that he can do away with one to keep the other
1: yeah maybe and his glasses he finds later have transition lenses so he doesn't need to swap from the sunglasses to the regs
2: yeah or he has ones that he can clip yeah he can clip on to them uh so he can wear sunglasses and then like keep them in his cargo pants pocket when he's inside
1: mike i just love hurley and sawyer together so much this, a, so this is a
2: really fun dynamic it's, because fun. They're, it, they're, it's two forms of humor but one is so dry. And one is so well-meaning. Like Nuke, look no further than the exchange of like Hurley saying, "Dude, you can use the points." And Sawyer so saying, "Well, you sure know how to butter up a man, stay puffed," which is both sarcastic and also a bit jabbing. Obviously, with yet another nickname that mocks Hurley's weight. And Hurley either sees completely past it or doesn't phase him at all. Sincerely responding, "It's a gift."
1: I love that. It's a gift. It's so good. So good. Uh, but I think like Sawyer like sees like oh, this Hurley guy is like somebody that I shouldn't be like an outright terrible person to.
2: Yeah, uh, and I will also say that uh, if we're again comparing gifts, much like we did with Charlie, I think this is a much lighter gift to butter people up than to see dead people.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. Um, but I think for uh, for Sawyer, it makes a lot of sense to do this too, where. Uh, do a, do a solid for the one guy that everybody on the island can agree upon is an awesome guy. Like, you never know if that might come in handy down the line. Um, also, clearly, uh, Hurley is going to be looking at the manifest, and as he's panicking about Ethan Rahm, he's probably freaking out about James Ford. He's like, where's James Ford? And he's like, keep it down. That's my name. Jeez. Well, well,
2: that's the other interesting thing. I guess maybe in another world, they could set up that, you know, somebody... Uh, have we not seen the whole story of Confidence Man we could see that, like, oh, someone's name isn't on the the manifest, and Sawyer could be a likely candidate. Uh, but, I mean, he isn't on there, but it seems like maybe because Ethan sort of gives away his own actions by, you know, kidnapping Claire and showing that he's guilty right there, right then. Otherwise, Sawyer could have been in for another interrogation due to him his name technically not being on the manifest.
1: All right, so uh, that happens. Hurley gets the manifest from Sawyer. Charlie is hanging out with Claire, uh and Quare's like, you could just go. This is a lot. You're just trying to rescue me, just like everybody else. And then she thinks she's going into labor. Uh, she's having the contractions. We gotta time the contractions. Charlie says, one sugar plum fairy, two sugar plum fairy. He thinks he can help her. He says, Look, if I could kick drugs, I could deliver a baby. And Quare looks at him like, huh? <laughs> I just love the line. Let me explain. I'm a drug addict. <laughs> I was a drug addict. I'm clean now. It was miraculous. It happened overnight. Kind of like uh, your future baby bump. Uh, I love uh, Charlie's
2: also very, like, rip, torn, and dodgeball way of thinking, like, if I could kick drugs, I could deliver a baby. Not synonymous activities whatsoever.
1: Oh, my God. Paul Giamatti's character on Lodge 49 uh, is uh, a, a great novelist who writes, uh, or at least everyone seems to think he's a great novelist. I think the jury is out. He like writes this like James Bond type of book series uh, about Tom Stone, and anything Tom Stone can do, Paul Giamatti's character is like I can do as well. Uh, so Tom Stone can defuse a bomb, pa- Paul Giamatti would know how to do it as well. But instead, he probably just like poops his pants or does something ridiculous. Uh, so I feel like it's fairly similar here with Charlie. Like if I can kick drugs, I can deliver a baby. I feel like uh maybe the two skills don't exactly add up but charlie's going to be helpful later yeah. on in this effort so
2: yeah but i also like this idea of like knowing charlie he's going to be like And I'm delivering the baby. And he's, like, holding an imaginary baby. Like, oh, Claire, look at him. Oh, he's beautiful.
1: (laughs) She's like, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? the most delicious stick-to-the-roof-of-your-mouth baby there is. Oh, terrifying. All right, so flashback as Charlie goes off into the jungle because Claire's like, go find someone who is an adult. Uh, (laughs) Who's
2: not a drug addict.
1: Yeah, so he goes off, uh, and we get a flashback, and... Uh, we find out that Claire is going to give up her baby for adoption. She's going to give it to the Stuarts. Uh, there's going to be Arlene and Joseph Stewart. Do you think they're going to name the baby speak. Stewart? Yeah. Stewart Stewart. Uh, yeah. There, there was someone who I knew once upon a time who knew a Mitchell Mitchell. Uh,
2: Maybe that's what Malcolm was trying to prevent. Like, no, don't give your
1: baby away. They're going to give him a really stupid name. He's going to be Stewart Stewart. Stew <laughs> Stew. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> Uh, Sawyer's going to call him a big pot of stew Yeah, so uh, you love soup, Mike uh, so, yeah. so Claire's going go to go to Joe and Arlene Stewart They're like, we're going to be great We're going to be very good parents Joseph doesn't speak at all the entire time. He just like kind of has like the smarmy bro vibe going on.
2: I don't know where you're getting that from. It seems like he's just very attentive.
1: Just rewatch the scene and look at how he like stares like so intensely at Claire without saying a word. I get super smarmy dude bro vibes from this guy.
2: Interesting. I mean, my assumption. I don't want to you know uh, prognosticate too much for the stewards, but I mean, if they're adopting, it makes me feel like something is happening, either they can't have children, or I know the adoption process is something that's very comprehensive and often exhausting. So I can imagine that maybe he's like, I finally landed somebody who will give me their child. Let me not screw it up by opening your mouth, Joey. Let Arlene do the talking.
1: Yeah, or the other read is, much like Richard Albert was sent to go recruit Juliet Burke, these are secret others, and they're trying to kidnap the baby.
2: <laughs> That'd be very interesting, of because I mean, I mean, it makes sense on the island, right? Because of the big stigma involving women uh, not being able to deliver children. But they're like, let's just find a baby and bring it to the island and see what happens.
1: I'm highly, highly paranoid. I'm on mole patrol at all times. Uh, Claire is going to see if they know Catch a Falling Star, the lullaby, iconic uh, within Lost for sure. Uh, I thought that maybe we would hear it for the first time here. I guess not. Mm -mm. I'm trying to remember where you hear Catch a Falling Star the first time.
2: I'm pretty sure it's when we go to the staff is the first time that we hear it because okay. it's on the, on the mobile. And then we'll obviously have Kate sing it. We'll have Claire sort of like maniacally sing it when we see her back in season six.
1: Oh yeah, the, the sundown rendition of Catch a Falling yeah. Star is so, 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 so good. Uh, that's like a moment where like, you know, season six gets a lot of crap, but that scene's really, really intense. Anyway, uh, shows the, Arlene says, yeah, I know the song, I'll do it. And Claire says that her dad used to sing it to her. So source that back to, to Between Christian. drinks. Yeah, between, <laughs> between whiskey-breathed uh, flights, uh, the, my jet-lagged dad. Uh, yeah. Uh, so she says, please sing it to the baby. Arlene says, of course I will. And Claire's like, all right, give me a pen. I'll sign. And the pen doesn't work. And then the next pen doesn't work. Uh, and she, you know, if only Boone was here. maybe he I was going to say, I have this image of Boone running in with seven pens, being uh-huh. like, I got pens. Finally, my purpose. Yeah. Uh, and then she says, I can't do it. Gotta leave. And Arlene says, what? No! No!
2: And she really could
1: have put up more of a fight.
2: To be fair, though, this is genuinely
1: heartbreaking. It's horrible. I know. I'm making light of it. It's terrible. It's awful. It's horrible.
2: But yeah, she, uh, I don't know. Maybe if she was a little less of a string bean, she could have given Claire her own black eye if she tried to leave, and a white eye as well.
1: I just love the line read of, no, no, they're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, Maybe they, they dump pig's blood on Claire as she leaves, and that was their big practical joke.
1: I believe you mean boar blood. Uh, (laughs) That means you'll be eating boar and banana forever. Forever. Claire goes to Malkin and says, All right, tell me what's up. What do you want to do? Uh, Back on the island, uh, Charlie running through the jungle looking for an adult. He finds Ethan Rahm, the one person you Uh. don't want to find. Literally, the guy. And there's some really,
2: again, some more fun foreshadowing here with Ethan. I didn't mention it back during the, uh, the Hurley scene, but Hurley says, you know, you think after a couple weeks on the island with the same people we know each other, and Ethan just says, yeah, you'd think so. And then here, the, everything we see Ethan do this episode, whether it's gathering water, collecting fruit, or gathering firewood, are the most, like, quote-unquote, survivorly things. And we don't really see the other characters really doing that. So it's clear they really wanted to set up, like, this is just your steak and potatoes island guy just collecting firewood. And, I mean, but the fact is he sticks out from somebody, so many other people in that he is doing that stuff. Uh, but... It's also purely coincidental. I don't know exactly how these next series of events look had Charlie happened to run into, I don't know, Sun and Jin instead of Ethan on the path.
1: Yeah, it would have looked very different, I think. They wouldn't have gotten kidnapped and Charlie wouldn't have been hanged from a tree. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think things would have been very different. And Ethan
2: would have been alive, ironically enough.
1: Yeah, true. So Charlie runs into Ethan, go to the caves, go tell Jack something's up with Claire, and Ethan's like, Claire? Oh no, it's a problem. Uh, And Ethan's like, all right, hold on, go back to Claire. I'm going to go get my needles and kidnapping tools. I'll be right back. (laughs) Uh, So uh, Charlie comes back, says, Jack's coming. Jack will be here. Uh, And she's freaking out. And she's like, oh, gosh, I'm not supposed to be here. I was promised that things would be different. And we get a flashback. And in the flashback... Uh, Claire is once again with the psychic and this time the psychic is whistling a different tune and it's not Catch a Falling Star. He's going he's gonna to offer it's, her it's money. It's leaving
2: on a jet plane. Yeah,
1: leaving on a jet plane. Uh, you got to go to LA. There's a nice couple there. They want to, they want your baby, they're gonna you're gonna get twelve thousand dollars for the deal, uh much worse deal than the forty K she was supposed to get according to the series Bible.
2: Yeah, and also getting like uh put up as well, apparently in lodging in Australia and she yeah. wouldn't even need to have to take the ridiculous flight where she'd be peeing every five minutes.
1: Yeah, Claire was better off when she was on the, the baby black market, when she was just like uh, really like looking to sell the thing. Uh, but uh the original vision of lost did not hold. Twelve thousand dollars is the number. Six K now, six K on the upon landing. Uh Malkin insists, they're not strangers, Claire, they're good people. Um and back on the island, Claire is like, I don't get it. Like the psychic was so you know emphatic about the fact that this all had to happen. And we crashed on the island, and this is not what was supposed to happen. And this is when we have the moment of realization let's hear the final sound of the episode
0: well, i can't go tomorrow
3: i have to get my it has to be this flight it can't be any other they're already scheduled to meet you when you're alive flight 815 flight 815
4: There's no couple in Los Angeles. He knew. He knew about the plane. What was going to happen. Oh, my God, he knew.
1: And it's like uh, Kaiser Soze being revealed with the Kobayashi mug smashing. Yeah to the but it's, but it's
2: charlie's fake teacup yeah it's the mason the
1: jar the this mason is jar.
2: this is so interesting though because this is the first and i don't know if it's the last but i can't remember off the top of my head many times where we obviously have the flashback off island and we have the present day on island but this mixes things up a bit where claire's present day voiceover is over the flashback stuff of her and malkin it's a really interesting muddying of the waters
1: yeah it doesn't happen a lot it's it's you know what the one thing that you could say about about claire is they um they the the show does some of its most early experimental format tweaking around claire uh whether it's like beginning this episode with the very crazy dream sequence the nightmare uh or what you're talking about here uh the fact that we are having um claire uh like remember the past and that's like juxtaposed on screen and everything like that uh but then you think about the the episode in season two where i guess like the other 48 days technically gets there first where that's just like a a a full a full tilt flashback episode technically that it's like catching us up on a story we didn't know about but beyond that Claire gets the distinction of having like the first on island flashbacks yeah. uh, in in maternity leave. Uh, so they 're always being a little experimental with claire i 'm sure that we we're going to talk more about like what did Malkin know what didn 't he know mm. we 've got feedback on that later on uh, so let 's just finish up the summary here uh, where even though Claire has just had like this this huge game changer realization, she actually like, physically feels better, she thinks it 's all right. Um uh, I guess Jack said that stress can cause uh, cause a false labor. So uh Charlie's happy that everything seems to be okay. Birthing emergency averted. Charlie says, I told you I'd take care of you. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, this was all on you, buddy.
2: And I'm still not addicted to drugs. Damn <laughs> it, Charlie, you can do it all. <laughs> yeah. Back
1: at the caves, in comes Saeed. Old R- Hoblin Saeed. Raven like a lunatic. Yeah, he comes and he's like, We're not alone. And then There's the
2: really uh, ominous stuff here. We're talking about what you were mentioning before about Locke being, you know, just big old uh, shady figure where Kate and Jack are, you know, by his side. And then you see Locke just skulking in the shadows, literally just watching him from afar.
1: Well, I mean, John Locke's ears are always perked up, right? Like, I think like he's always in tune with what's like the big to do on the island and should I be involved? And I think he hears this He's like, this feels like a deal. Uh, So here he is catching news from Saeed who's been gone for a week. So the return of Saeed, not to mention the fact that Locke knocked this guy out. So maybe he's especially interested in what happened to the guy who he knocked unconscious who's been missing for a week. He says, oh, I should
2: have gone for his legs.
1: Should have gone for the leg, sweep the leg. Uh, so he's interested, and Hurley shows up, and it's the, the scene that we listened to at the start of this podcast. Hurley shows up, Jack. There's you gotta listen to me, Jack. And Jack's like, what? Hurley, I'm trying to deal with Saeed. Like, how Hur- all these characters have just like sinus <laughs> infections, according yeah. to you. Uh, Jack, I need help. Jack, need a, we need the we need the measles <laughs> nasal spray. Uh, yeah, the yeah, I need the I need the the Z pack. Uh, and Hurley says, I was checking the manifest. There's a guy who's not on the plane, and we cut to Ethan. Hello there. Uh, uh, Ethan's there's, very there's, own good morning.
2: And there's a literal wipe where they like pan across. This is so, so well done. Even knowing it after the fact, just this entire final act is so tense and so amazingly done. And it's set up so nicely. Again, in this bat- first half of season one, the events from previous episodes flow so seamlessly into one another, where we had Danielle mention to Saeed in the last episode, like, hey, watch your people, because some of them might not be as they seem. And then it just so happens that that ends up manifesting itself here with the manifest, and it turns out that Ethan reveals himself, and, I mean, he's so good at being creepy. It's so
1: creepy! He's, like, drooling. He looks like Pennywise the Clown! Like, it's... (laughs) Come on, Charlie!
2: (laughs) Come on, Claire, you'll float!
4: You'll you'll float. float! You'll float here, Claire!
1: Yeah, this is very, very creepy. I love you, Pennywise. Uh,
2: uh, <laughs> could you imagine, like, if if Desmond's mate was Pennywise the clown?
1: <laughs> no, I'm trying right now, and it's but really Tim hard Curry to see. is
2: Pennywise the clown.
1: Very hard to see. I love like, you, Desmond. He's like drooling and just like, like like, "Hi there," and they're like, "Hey, hey, Ethan, what's up?" It's like,
2: Ugh. yeah, you. I mean, you'd be surprised
1: that he wouldn't be a shadier
2: figure if, if this is how he's just t- typically behaving, though. I guess we'll find out later how Ethan is a a hardworking other, but he also has tendencies towards being a bit over the top, particularly when he ends up joining with Winmore's forces. He tends to be a bit too into his job. So maybe Ethan was sort of putting up an act and now he's finally dropping the facade and being who he truly is. But we're going to see psycho Ethan next episode.
1: Yeah, big time. Uh, I know he's no Sullivan, but sometimes Ethan acts rashly, Uh, (laughs) and this is uh, one of those instances as the episode ends with him in front of Charlie and Claire, and that is raised by another. And I do remember watching this the first time being like, yo, uh and this was like back in like the the when when lost was starting to like gain steam and i at yeah. this point in like getting into lost my roommates and i in college we were now like starting to read about it wherever we could and like getting on message boards a little bit and my memories of those days are are foggier than i'd like but i really do remember there being like a lot of buzz about the idea that like uh a character was going to be revealed to have not been on the plane uh, and i don 't think that the person was identified as Ethan, but like that rumor was out there uh and then when it manifests no no pun intended in this way uh even like having like that that buzz behind it like there was there was no way to predict that this was going to be the ending and that it was going to be like this nefarious. I remember like my roommates and i we thought like maybe it would be revealed that like Hurley is some sort of like secret Island royalty, even uh, that he was like from this place. And he was just going to be like this happy guy. I'm like, oh, the island's not so bad. Uh, and I guess like ultimately in the grand scheme, like that's closer than, than we could have ever realized at that point uh, that he belongs there and he would be royalty someday. Um, but those are just some of my memories of watching this. Wow. I know for a lot of people, uh, the, the raised by another ending uh, was a very, very impactful ending. And if you like, weren't already hooked at or lost at this point, this really roped you in pretty good.
2: Yeah, this is burning my retinas as just being so... Because remember, again, I was somebody who did not want to check out network drama primarily because it was so scaring and unnervy for me. So for me to check it out be like, Ugh, I, all right, I guess I'm committed to the show, but it's making me feel really weird things that I, I don't want to feel, and that's why I haven't checked anything out beforehand. I mean, we have heard from the pilot at the end of the pilot that there might be others, and Rousseau sort of underlined it, but... I feel like for the most part, all the drama was revolving around the stuff going on with the survivors. This is really a transitional moment where it's now less about, hey, they just need to survive on the island. It's they need to survive on the island and they need to survive other people on the island as well. And the fact that they are they presented now this external force. Again, we got the monster, but to have a humanized form of that enemy is so frightening. And I know that, you know, the teeth going to get removed a bit, much like Charlie's dream down the line once we go to, you know, Dharmaville and once we get to meet the others. But, I mean, for this first season, the others were terrifying. And I absolutely love this because it's starkly presented to the audience. Like, you thought the biggest threat to their survival was just, you know, nature? No, 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 no. It's much worse than that.
1: Much worse than that. All right. Before we get into the 15, 16, others section, let's thank our sponsors for this episode of Down the Hatch. Once again, our friends over at BetDSI.com. Mike, the Island Open Golf Tournament is over, but football season is just getting started. Woo! And here on Pusher Recaps, we're aiming to help you add some excitement to the game by making BetDSI.com your betting partner. BetDSI has a live betting platform where you can watch all the events and even bet on all the games until the final whistle. New members get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. That's double your money to start winning games. Today. Bloom, let me tell you a little bit more about BetDSI if Please you don't do. mind. Uh, BetDSI has been paying winners for 20 years. It's top rated on betting review sites. It's got a very user friendly interface and mobile site, a user mister friendly interface, even to shout out one of Ethan's buddies, uh Tom, who shall not be showing up until much further down the hatch. Uh, not much further. A
2: few yeah, I was going to say, in, in a certain uh costume, we should say. You know, like eight weeks from now, I would say.
1: Uh, maybe more. I think probably at this point it's like. 12 weeks from now. Anyway,
2: early, early 2020,
1: early 2020, uh, bet DSI. It comes with the fastest payouts in the industry. You simply play, win, and get paid. Get those points. Sawyer style. Sawyer's after points this week and bet DSI wants you getting paid as well. Bet DSI offers betting options for everything. The NFL, NBA, NHL, boxing, all other major sports, even politics, even reality TV, even esports. virtually everything on the Island. You could probably, Probably even bet, Mike. Who is Ethan going to hurt first, Charlie or Claire? Mm, Two to one odds on Charlie, I would say. I think that's a pretty good bet. Uh, You can use live betting at BetDSI to bet on games from start to finish, every play, every minute until the end. New members get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. That's double your money to start Winning today. So once again, go to betdsi.com, use that promo code recap 101 get this limited time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. All right, Mike, 1516 Others section. Are you ready to dig into some feedback? Always ready. All right, well, let's start take by— Dig in, revi- in like Claire's fingernails. I know, a quarter inch deep. Let's revisit Solitary to start pick up some—we're uh, cleaning up the feedback from last week. Other number one, uh, talking about the sickness, which— Ooh, getting uh, down
2: with the sickness.
1: Getting down with the sickness. Eric Divestine wrote in and said, Was Rousseau crazy, or were her teammates actually sick when she killed them? When we see her kill Robert in Season 5, it seems like she's delusional. But then in Season 6, Saeed is taken by this same sort of mind-controlling disease that Rousseau was afraid of. Does she really know what she's talking about? Jordan from Wisconsin adds, the sickness plot point is introduced in solitary. I hope you'll refresh us on that whole story. I know there are vaccines that the Dharma people take. I can't remember where all of this goes. Uh, Well, Jordan, uh, I think it goes in a direction that maybe uh, the Lost Raiders did not quite understand until later on because a lot of it doesn't fully add up i think like the dharma vaccine stuff doesn't really fully add up no
2: and i think there's also like like i know inman does the vaccines with desmond and like they also wear the hazmat suits but i'm pretty sure the hazmat suit they say is supposed to be from the purge in case any more gas from the orchid leaks out so maybe it's from that as well um or the tempest yes uh so to answer i guess jordan's question basically what we see of the quote-unquote sickness is when Jin. Spend some time temporarily with Rusi and the Blowfish. Uh, He sees, (laughs) you know, one of them get dragged down into the smoke monster's lair. And then he flashes again and he sees uh, Robert and Danielle sort of much like in solitary pointing rifles at one another. And we'll see the moment where he tries to fire on her and uh, the firing pin was taken out and she kills him. So to answer Eric's question, I still believe her because he did try to kill her. In that moment, though, maybe he felt it was out of self-defense because she was acting irrationally. But from what we see in season six, basically where the, the smoke monster hangs out in this temple, it leads people down there and sort of infects it to become uh, like feral and almost inhuman from a behavioral perspective and almost slaves to the smoke monster. Uh, and that's what the, assumingly the French crew be- uh, became, and that's what Claire becomes later on.
1: And that's what happens to Saeed until it doesn't. The whole thing's kinda confusing. Not one of the strongest points of lost. Maybe we'll be able to find ways to heal uh, some of the some of the aspects of the sickness. Moving forward. Um, other number two, uh, Trevor Roberts had written in, and just with a great shout-out to, to to the great Roosie of the Blowfish, uh, to, to Mira Furlan, uh, Trevor wrote in and said, Watching Mira Furlan's introductory episode on Lost and the work she's doing as an actor, navigating an emotional landscape that ranges from torturer to victim to seductress to batshit crazy jungle woman on the same scene, it's a true joy to behold. She is mesmerizing high praise from a great actor in his own right Trevor Mm -hmm. Roberts towards Mira Furlan. I already miss Rousseau I wish that she was in this episode I wish that she was in every episode
2: well we'll see her soon enough when she's gonna ask them to come to the Black Rock with her I miss her so much (laughs) yes I miss the whisper shouting I'm so sorry
1: all right, uh, other number three, let's get into some production stuff. uh this is uh, there's not a ton of production stuff for raised by another. There's a lot of feedback to get into this week, so instead, we're really drawing uh, those from, from the series Bible while we still can. There's those stories of the week uh, that we're calling in unused stories from the series Bible that Ben Martel, the great Ben behind the curtain, has been wrangling together. This is apparently Mike uh an unused story that could have been on an episode. Of Lost. This is from the Bible. After Shannon has a snit with Sawyer, I didn't even know that was a thing. The that's, object, like a, that's like a Claire use of phrase. The object of her affection, despite her adamant denial of said fact. What? Uh, I guess in this version of Lost, Shannon and Sawyer have got a thing going oh, on. God. Uh, she wanders deep into the jungle and stumbles upon.
2: Two strange young men! There we go. Now we're using the caps correctly, not just for the word mysteries.
1: (laughs) Who may or may not have been survivors of the crash as they're unwilling to let her go back. It becomes clear it's the latter. Back at the camp, Sawyer and Boone must resolve their differences in order to form an unlikely rescue team in order to get her back. Uh, Wow, that could have been uh, the introduction of the others. Could have been the introduction of... Sawyer and Shannon going to Bone Town, and Sawyer and Boone having to team up to save Shannon. What yeah. a what a what a crisis that was averted there.
2: And and I think I mean Jack would probably feel a little shamed, right? That he wouldn't be the one on the the finding expedition. But I guess we would have two Ethans, I suppose, if it's a pair of people who weren't on the crash site.
1: Yeah, Ethan and Ethan.
2: <laughs> yes, the, the twins. twins, like uh, the from the Shining. They'll hold hands, come play yeah. with us, Shannon.
1: Uh, forever and ever and ever. Man, I'm so glad that it worked out the way that it worked out instead of that.
2: Yeah, though, uh, I feel like Sawyer would, uh, I don't know, Sawyer's shooting, I don't know, do you think Sawyer or Boone would shoot Ethan and Eason rather than Charlie?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think eventually, right? I mean, at this point, Sawyer's already shot a guy, so... You know, well, I, I don't
2: know, he's, no, he's but I actually it. think it could actually be a very similar thing where, you know, you would think, and much like in the episode we'll talk about next week, that Jack would be the one to take the shot and ends up being Charlie. I could see Boone shooting, and I feel like that would be very meaningful because of, obviously, his relationship with Shannon, though we'll see down the line if that was a bearing fruit as early on as the series Bible.
1: All right, other number four. We're getting into Raised by Another Proper Feedback. Uh, and speaking of Raised by Another, Other. This is from John Krause, who was very sad to miss out on the podcast last week. John sidebarred with me. uh, Wants to make sure he's getting in feedback every week. John, get it in before Monday nights. That's how you get in. Before you watch your Dancing with the Stars. Put in a Google reminder if you use such things. John writes in, says, I'm sure most people know this, but the title, like many of Lost's episode titles, is a pun. The psychic warns Claire of the dangers of having her baby raised by another person. But ultimately, the real threat of the episode is that the baby is going to be taken and raised by ANOTHER! <laughs> John just wrote that in caps, so I felt like I had to scream it.
2: Uh, I love it. I, I just love—I love the episode titles for a number of reasons. And we've spoken about them a bit. We spoke about, like, the double entendre of solitary last week, now the literal raised by an other. I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about all the best cowboys have daddy issues next week.
1: For sure. Uh, Other number five, we got to dig into the psychology behind the psychic. Is Malkin for reals or is he a fraud? Uh, Stefan Johnson writes and says, does Malkin freak out during the reading because he knows he's a fake? but a real vision just came to him. Uh, Dallin Servo writes in, we apparently find out in question mark that Malkin is a fraud, so what's exactly happening here? Uh, ben Martel notes that apparently, uh, cut from the episode, there was a scene where Malkin was going to cry after giving Claire her, her plane tickets, uh, transposed against Claire's realization that he'd known all along, which implies that Malkin knew the plane would crash. Um, so what do you think about all of this? Because as Andrew Humphrey notes, If the psychic really does have true abilities here, then did he really just allow a plane to crash and kill a bunch of people just so one baby wouldn't have an unhappy life? Do you have theories about what's up with uh, with Mr. Malkin? Oh, I do. And I'm so excited to bring it up Uh, because, yeah, it's a weird thing, because
2: as was pointed out by Dallin in question mark for those that might not remember, we'll talk about this definitely down the line. But, uh Mr. Echo visits Malkin land because uh there were claims that you know there was a miracle that happened, and Malkin said, no, there's no miracle in fact, I'll admit to you you know uh, one religious man to another that I am a that there's th- there's a fraud going on here there, there's no mystical stuff going on, but just because there's not mystical stuff going on with him doesn't mean there can't be mystical stuff going on in, in general. My theory is that Richard Malkin is an AOJ, an agent of Jacob.
1: Aye. Where we know that Claire, or at least That's how you pronounce AOJ. Aye. Aye. It's a soft J.
2: Ooh, I love it. Uh, yeah. Very, very <laughs> Scandinavian of you. Aye. But, but I think that, uh, you know, Littleton was a name that was on the lighthouse as a candidate. We saw that Jacob touched some people who would be candidates, but obviously he helped, in one way or another, help arrange events to get people on the Oceanic Flight 815 I mean, we've seen people have the capacity to leave the island and do work for Jacob. We saw Alpert do that with John Locke and the, hey, pick a random object and that'll determine the the rest of your life type of thing. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that Richard Malkin is somebody who was recruited by Jacob uh, to, you know, set up this whole thing and end up running into Claire Littleton— that's why he sort of has the change of heart. Maybe Jacob had then, you know, given him an order, a change of plans to get her on that plane. I don't know. That—that's my sense of it. So I think that we can sort of have our cake, our Banoffee pie, and eat it too here. And <laughs> I, I do think Mulkin is a fake, but I do think there's a possibility that through acting on somebody else's orders, there she was predestined to get onto that right. plane because if she doesn't get to the island, then she can't be a candidate.
1: Yeah, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, and, and that was something that LaRue Botha, the great LaRue Botha, had written in also in asked is the psychic part of the man in blacks or Jacob's cronies in the real world. Uh, that could fit with your theory here that maybe he's working for Jacob. Um, I think it, it could be totally possible that like someone said like, hey, so someone's going to come to you on this date. And uh, like, I know that you suck at your job and like you're not actually good at your job. Uh, but this is actually a person that, like, we can tell you what to do with them. And then, like, he gets, like, the... He gets all freaked out because she shows up. He's like, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know if I can go through with this. And eventually someone's like, hey, you got to tell her to, like, get on the plane because uh, we need her on the island. Yeah, I guess was, Like, all sorts of things like that could happen.
2: Yeah, and I guess to bring up Bren's production note of, you know, the, the cut shot, it is really interesting because, again, that's sort of... Like, it could be taken in a way of implying that, oh, he knew what was going to happen. Or it could be, yes, he knows what is going to happen, but it's not by his own talent. You know, he's sort of been told these are the moves that you need to make. And tearfully, he's doing this. Uh, you know, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen to her. He might have thought he just sent a woman out to her grave by putting her in a plane crash, but he has to, for one reason or another, take his
1: marching orders from uh, the man in white. Alright, other number six. Ben Martell wants to know if we think that this might be lost sexism at its most overt here in Raised by Another. Ben writes in and says, is it just mirrors this whole episode about Claire's life being dictated by men who don't listen to her. Thomas convinces her to have the baby and then he walks out. Malkin manipulates her on to 815. Ethan saps her with needles. Jack diagnoses her with paranoid delusions. I will also add that he tries to give her sleeping pills. And Charlie is busy trying to take care of her instead of of getting the doctor that can actually help. Uh, do you take issue with this stuff the same way that Ben Martel posits?
2: See, it's interesting, because I think if you look at from that perspective, yeah, absolutely, you're viewing Claire through the lens of all the men who are trying to impact her life. But I still feel like Claire is a fundamentally independent character. And maybe it's partially Emily Draven's performance, maybe it's partially the writing, but I didn't necessarily look at this episode and be like, this is all about Claire and the men in her life. I feel like we still get the essence of Claire as a character. And you still have these moments where she walks through the jungle and she's like, no, I'm leaving. I'm leaving the cave because this is happening. She's clearly taken aback by these people's actions against her. So I think that while we do see the impact that certain men have in her life, I think she sees that impact as well. And she's ready to be independent and she's going to become very, very independent of a character down the line.
1: Uh, other number seven, Eric Divestein writes in Claire, her friend, and Thomas all talked about Claire's mother as if she's around, but we later learn that she's in a coma. Ooh wee, what up with that? What up with that? Yeah, so I added Jason, the ooh wee, what up with
2: that? Jason Sedakis is in a coma running, doing the running man in the background. While What's up with the it?
1: coma shaming, though?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, is it like uh, Australian pleasantries that you believe she's, they make it like she's still alive to help placate your friend?
1: Yeah, I think it's just uh, they didn't know yet in the writing. It's as easy as that. Exactly. This Um, is this
2: is up on the uh, the whiteboard with what Kate did in terms of just TBDs for the writers' room.
1: Other number eight, we touched on this a little bit as well. Scott French writes in: If Hurley is checking names to survivors on the manifest, does that mean he's the first to find out Sawyer's real name? I'd say yeah, right. Like that's the only way that it makes sense that he must like get the manifest, uh, and uh, you know, as he's walking away from the tent, he's doing a quick scan. He doesn't see Sawyer's name on there. He quickly turns around, is like, "Wait, why aren't you on the on the list?" He's like, "Ah, um, man, all right, I guess I got to tell you, my name isn't Sawyer." Well, it's how many James how many Ford. holes
2: do we think are in the manifest? Because let's remember that you know the reason Boom brought it up is because they said that they went through it when they uh, held the funeral for all the people. But you could imagine some bodies and people were still lost. so there certainly were some open names. So I don't know if it's necessarily a situation where like. Only one name was left on the manifest, James Ford, and so it has to be Sawyer.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I, I think like if Hurley is looking and all he knows Sawyer as is Sawyer and Sawyer is top of mind in that moment, he sees uh, that Sawyer's name isn't on there, that he probably goes, oh, what the hell? What's the well, deal?
2: I mean, it would be a little bit of a pot calling the kettle black, wouldn't it, considering that Hurley goes by his own nickname?
1: Yeah, but the, the, this particular pot is in charge of figuring out who the other kettles are. Yeah. So.
2: <laughs> I just love this, like, kitchen senses going on.
1: Yeah, it's some very Beauty and the Beast bullshit happening here. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, other number nine uh, Again for John Krause uh, Talking about the Ethan reveal uh, John writes in The Ethan reveal is still so chilling It's also the convergence of four separate plot threads First we have the A plot of Claire thinking someone is after her Then we have the B plot of Hurley doing a census Then we have the C plot slash flashback of Claire wrestling with being responsible for her baby And then we have the D plot coming in from a previous episode With Side learning that there are other people on the island In incredible, uh, co-signed John, I do mm-hmm. think that the climax of race by another, um, There's already been so many great moments in Lost through ten episodes of the show at this point, uh, but it's just such a masterful interweaving of a lot of the work that has been done up to this point. Uh, And certainly knowing as we discussed last week with Solitary that these two episodes were kind of developed concurrently, um, it's really no surprise that they kind of bob and weave uh, with each other in such a seamless way.
2: And I know we talked about this last week, but I'm very glad we talked about uh, last time of how apparently these two were supposed to be switched in the running order with some of these ending scenes rejiggered, but I'm happy we got the episode away from Saeed, because I think not only was he such an interesting presence at the end here, but it really was a stark back-to-reality moment of, okay, we're having some of this lighthearted fun with the census and some really, you know, uh, heart-rendering stuff with Claire, but oh my god, there's a larger existential threat to these survivors. And I just love that reality break right at the end there, which, as John says, really swims together in this fantastic stew Of the final act of this episode.
1: More on Ethan. Other number 10. About Ethan's backstory. Uh, We got a couple of people writing in about this. Victoria Steele writes in and says. There's a fun fact from season 5. Ethan is the only baby that Juliet is going to successfully deliver on the island. Do you see this having a bigger meaning? Or just the producer's closing loops. Um, does that track for you at all with what we come to know of Ethan, knowing that he's born on the island? It's pre-incident, so none of like the nuclear stuff is going to bother him, none of the radiation shit. Uh, do you think that Ethan being born on the island, and specifically being born per Juliet, Uh, who is going to struggle with this so much, um, and this is such a crux of her story. Does that add anything to you, or is that just sort of like the fun circularity of Lost?
2: Well, what I love about it is it really informs Ethan's, as I mentioned before, devotion. He is devoted to his cause. You see him—I mean, he was following uh, Widmore's orders to kill— baby Rousseau back when you know uh, we talked about last week of Ben deciding to, to you know belay the order and uh, take the baby instead of killing it he is someone who is just so devoted to the cause that he works for you know to the point where Ben's going to consistently make him somebody who is going to sort of uh, run Scout and that's who he ends up infiltrating the survivors that we know is because when the plane crashes he disposes of him to go uh, take care of his mission and that's one reason as well that I think he does this too. I think maybe some other person, maybe like a Ben Linus, would instead try to figure out another way to worm his way into the situation. We'll see that as much next season when he's found out. When we see Saeed barge into the hatch finding out who the real Henry Gale is, he really tries to talk his way out of it. Whereas Ethan's all about action. I don't know if someone like Ben Linus or Juliet, if they got found out about their secret identity, would Kidnap Claire, string Charlie from a tree, and then threaten to kill every single person on this island.
1: I think one of the things about Ethan, because I know that that is like a sticking point for a lot of people, is like why would Ben send one of their only doctors into this dangerous situation to infiltrate the Oceanic survivors um, when they could when he could have sent like so many of the other minions? But Ethan is born on the island. He's born of the Dharma Initiative. Horace Goodspeed is his father, mm-hmm. uh, and Ethan is going to eventually become one of the others which means like as he's growing up and you know he's like a teenager and he's with ben as like kind of like a mentor like we're going to rebel against the dharma initiative we're going to defect to the others that ethan much like ben had to like put on a show like he had to put on an act he had to keep that secret close to the chest uh so ethan actually is probably one of the most skillful others in terms of like that level of deception of blending in in plain sight. Uh, you know, the fact that he goes on covert missions like that with Richard Alpert to go and recruit Juliet in the first place, you know, things like that. Uh, so I, it, it, never really bothered me too, too much, uh, that Ethan is the person who gets sent to infiltrate the other, uh, to infiltrate the oceanic survivors, even though he's one of the others only doctor. Cause I, I think that, you know, this skill of his, that he could actually blend in and infiltrate is maybe unmatched Uh, By others in the group as well.
2: Yeah, and I think the fact that, again, he's just, he's like, hey, Dharma number one, to the point where he'll probably kill for Dharma, I think makes him a very loyal soldier. Whereas, you know, maybe if you have some other people, quite literally, other people that are not as entirely devoted to the cause, you don't want to send them to infiltrate this group and check things out, especially. It ends up becoming great because when they say, oh, crap, here's a pregnant woman, we can might be able to solve our infertility problem that has, you know, plagued us for decades. It happens to be one of the island's only doctors from another perspective that's able to be there, take care of her and make sure that she's well taken care of for the most part.
1: Uh, other number 11, Amy LaRue. Amy LaRue getting a little loopy out here. Uh, coming up with some anagrams, uh, because Ethan Rom, of course, very famously an anagram for other man. Uh, so Amy, knowing that, decided to check out what anagrams she could make with our names, Mike. Uh, I guess Josh Wiggler apparently is an anagram of Howler's Jig.
2: Oh, that makes sense, given your uh, ability to laugh and also your lovely dance abilities as well.
1: Yes, and my jiggling body. Uh, Apparently, Mike Bloom does not uh, net out anything too great in terms of anagrams, but a Mike Bloom type turns into Ample Booty Mike. (laughs) Which is
2: great. Wow. I think I might have to change my Twitter handle to that at some point.
1: Ample Booty Mike. Uh, Wiggler's Wombats. uh, It's an anagram for a wigwam's lobster. I didn't know that the sock company made lobsters. It sounds terrible. Listen,
2: in this day and age, you can make anything. You got to merchandise.
1: Uh, also uh, nets out as a witless worm bag. <laughs> I was called that in high school. It was tough. Uh, and grabs swim towel, which is what I have to do in my recurring nightmare where I am suddenly naked in front of an entire uh, swimming pool full of people. Well, Josh, oh, just stand, stand, to the,
2: stand in the sand next to the swimming pool. And you can just sink until nobody remembers you anymore.
1: Lots of people upset that Lost is doing Australia wrong. This is other number 12. Millie Wise writes in, says, Being Aussies, we enjoy hating the bad Australian accents. And I was convinced that Thomas was an American, but he is, in fact, an Aussie with a dodgy Australian accent. I'll be emailing you again soon for the episode with the best, worst Australian accent. Ooh, i'm very intrigued to find out what that one is uh having listened to you know i I try not to listen too much to it because i don't want it to to inform my takes here on this podcast but i i have listened to enough of the storm that i have a good sense of what's probably in like the Uh, culture right now uh the storm being several episodes ahead of us
2: Uh, are we looking at outlaws
1: uh, I don't want to spoil anything for you. We'll we'll get there. I'll know it when we get there. Uh, Fitzy writes in and says, Claire says she makes $5 an hour, even in 2007. That's really bad for a minimum wage, and that's in Australia where the minimum wage is much higher. Current minimum wage in Australia is $18.95 an hour. Well, listen, um, the
2: fish and fry is not great with its work procedures. Claire really should unionize.
1: She really should. Uh, other number thirteen. Let's get some scream rankings going on. Stefan Johnson wants to know who's the best screamer on the show between Emily deravin, Yunjin Kim, or Maggie Grace. Ooh. Hard to say. They're all fantastic.
2: Yeah, Maggie Grace's screaming the pilot is iconic. Is so good. Uh Yunjin Kim, uh, as much as Sun is known for a badass, she still does scream sometimes, especially when that poor freighter ends up blowing up and That's a, a remarkable dead.
1: scene. Yeah, that's incredible.
2: Uh, yeah, that's where the helicopters coming from, Desmond. Uh, I Emily DeRaven, though, I mean, she puts in like the work, and she really does like the terrified screams. Like I feel like Maggie Grace is doing the traumatized screams, and Jung Jin Kim is doing like the grieving screams. But I think I think Emily DeRaven has it locked down in terms of terror,
1: the horror screams for sure. Uh, other number fourteen, counting time. Uh, Jordan from Wisconsin <laughs> asks, how do you guys count seconds? I go one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, but I really enjoyed Charlie's one Sugar Plum plum Fairy. Oh, there we go. There's a tongue Tongue twister. Tongue twister. Uh, Can you get some comments from the international listeners to let us know how they count seconds? Well, you've heard the request, people. How do you count your seconds? I tend to do the one Mississippi, personally.
2: I'm, uh, I'm very boring. I go for the one 1,000, two 1,000.
1: Oh, I do that as well. I do that as well. I would like to make a concerted effort to switch to one Sugar Plum Fairy, two Sugar Plum Fairy.
2: Yeah. Or, or maybe there's some sort of other, like, loss related four syllable phrase that we can put there instead and try to instill into the universe.
1: Oh, my God. Well, four is a lucky number, of course, or an unlucky number, as it were. Um, one Saeed two Saeed three Saeed four like Saeed One Forrest Whitaker, two Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, let's count them by Forrest Whitaker's. Uh, oh, Okay, uh, other number 15, a roundup. Down Servo, updating the dude count. There's four dudes in this episode. The total is now 32 times that Hurley has said dude Whoa. through 10 episodes of Lost. That's like a 3.2 DPE, dudes per episode. Dudes per episode. Uh, Sierra writes in, Mike wants to know if you think Claire's bucket hat is a noticeable hat.
2: Uh, I guess as the foremost expert apparently on noticeable hats, I would say so, even though we did away with it here. I guess it's a downside of her not being at the beach is because we say goodbye to that cute bucket hat. Are there noticeable hats in Lost? I've been really trying to think of, you know, the major ones we see in in the series.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know if I, uh, I mean, like, Mr. Friendly basically has the same hat when he shows up later on this season. Uh... Hmm.
2: Yeah, but we don't it's, see like Ben Linus in a baseball cap, you know?
1: Not really. It doesn't come to mind very readily, at least. I remember him having like an ascot at one point. It's
2: yeah. Weird. So we'll ha- we'll Couple have to times. see. It might have to go from noticeable hats to like noticeable
1: accessories. To your point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, also uh, worth shouting out, of course, Jim Fells once again has another soundtrack analysis video uh, for for the themes of Claire and what's introduced and raised by another. We will link to that in our show notes. For sure.
2: Yes. Uh, he touches upon uh, two Claire themes that are introduced, which is really interesting. One is the main Claire theme, which is more of a lullaby that plays malevolently with Claire in season six. And there's one that's about her relationship with Charlie that uh, b- brings up a lot of elements from through the looking glass and greatest hits that I was not ready to watch.
1: Are you ever really ready to watch it? Um, Let's get into 23 points. And in fact, we have some feedback on the 23 points. Our final other bleeds into the 23 points. Uh, A couple of different things about it. Uh, David Healy had written in and said, uh, Josh is setting a dangerous precedent with giving LVP points to everyone who dies. If Charlie gets an LVP point for his death, I think we all riot. Dave, uh, start investing in riot gear, you know? (laughs) I Charlie, know. Charlie I, dies, and so he's got to get an no, LVP point. I think yeah, we're
2: going to take exception. We have yet. Mm, to see are a, we? We have yet to see a major character die.
1: Are we? Yeah. Uh, we'll have to. We'll have to figure it out when we get there. Let's not. You know. Let's not rule anything out yet. Oh this, boy! Uh, don't build
2: enemies we, at this point, Wiggler. We got a good hot streak going. Let's not go cold.
1: A, look, it's a year and two months away. It's a lot of time between now and that <sighs> LVP point. Uh, so who knows what's going to happen? It depends on how we're feeling about Charlie at that point in time. As we just pointed out in this episode, he dies for nothing. But that's not his fault. That's Desmond's fault. Yeah, well, Charlie shouldn't have put all of his faith in Desmond. Science yeah, but and he's, faith, but he man. says
2: he, he says in this episode that he believes that people can have psychic visions. So when Desmond saved his life that many times, he has to put faith in him.
1: I guess that's true. Uh, Matt Konecki had asked if LVP points remove MVP points and vice versa. So at the end, each character will have an absolute score. You may have missed this, but I clearly missed it. Yes, that's how it works. Uh, An LVP point would negate an MVP point. Uh, So there's an absolute score is what we are building towards here. Um, And also, as we get into this, Josh B. uh, Wanted to make sure that we had noted that Sawyer gets his points this week because Hugo said he needed them so we are now at that point mike where we will find out if hurley's request uh if that comes to pass here we are in the 23 points um i'm going to give out two mvp points this week uh, mike will give out three then mike will give out two lvp points and i will give out three lvp points uh the the headlines of the 23 point section right now is Kate is in the lead with six, Saeed's got four, and then it is a three-way tie for third place with Jack, Locke, and Son at three apiece. And then all the way at the bottom, Sawyer is still anchoring things with negative four points. Uh, that's really the big headline. And Then it's just a whole mess of weird people who've got negative points. So let's see how things shift this week. Mike, you've got the first MVP point to award. Let's hear it.
2: Gotta give it to Claire. I think, you know, she. the fact that she ends up being right... At the end of all this, and still is able to possess a certain independence, uh, shows some strength in the character. I think Emily Jarabin's performance, as you mentioned in the very beginning here, I think really elevates this character off of the page from what it could be, Scream included. So, as per usual with our uh, flashback characters here in the initial stages of Down the Hatch, I I gotta give it to Miss Littleton here.
1: All right, well, I got to give the first of mine to, to Hurley Hugo Reyes. Oh, he's got uh, a streak going now. He's got a little bit of a streak going. The numbers are good. He's at two now, uh, officially. Uh, I mean, listen, he excellent leadership on Hurley's part, being like, we got we to form an action plan here, make sure that people can't just like, get like abducted in the caves. And yeah, it doesn't quite work, but that's not Hurley's fault. Uh, Hurley puts in the work. Uh, so Hurley gets a point this week from me.
2: I'm going to give a point to Charlie. Uh, look, maybe he doesn't have the best tact when it comes to revealing his former addiction, but as I mentioned with the whole peanut butter storyline during Confidence Man, I think that his adoration and at least care for Claire really comes from a good place. and I found him genuinely sweet this episode before he turns very, very sour next episode. So I'm going
1: to give him some credit here. Uh, Hurley told me to do it. Who am I to defy the protector of the island? I have to give a point to Sawyer. If I had more points to give, I would give multiple points to Sawyer uh, because Hurley does say you could use the points. Uh, I have one to spare. Sawyer's been in the red for a while. He remains in the red with this one point that I am giving to him, Uh, but he gets a point anyway. And in fairness, uh, like it's an earned point, he forks over the manifest without any argument, without any fight whatsoever. I guess he lets Slip a stay puffed but Hurley seems to let it roll off his back. Uh, so, Sawyer, take an MVP point, my friend. You've earned it.
2: i mean the slow climb out of the negatives for Mr. Ford. I was thinking of giving one to him as well, because if we want to follow Hur- Hurley's line to the letter, he does say you could use the points with a plural at the end. But the parent heart in me wanted to give a sympathy point to the poor Stewart family. <laughs> what?! Listen, Josh. We're they, giving an MVP point to the Stewart. I feel so bad for them. Look, at, think about how much they could have gone you're through. You're gonna, you're gonna memorialize the Stewart family on the 23 points, Josh. Statue? They really <laughs> wanted a baby. They nearly had a baby. I cannot imagine what it must have been like for them to have to, like, literally. One signature away from finally having a child after how many months and how many years, probably, of trying and one faulty pen, and she's out the door. I feel terrible for them. Does Joey have resting douche face? Maybe that's not his fault. My heart goes out to them. My
1: points go out to them, too, sir. You're giving a point to the Stuarts?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And I do it again, too. Oh
1: my God. It takes a lot to make a stew. Uh, including <laughs> one MVP point to so the Stuarts. Okay. Uh, plus, all right. plus, it balances
2: out the weird alien family from the Confidence Man episode. Now the, now the family points have balanced out to zero.
1: Family of science, family of faith. Yeah, maybe we could just scrub them from the board entirely. Um, all right, I've got three LVP points to dish out, and I'm going to slam dunk them all into <laughs> Thomas's stupid face.
4: <laughs> I yes. hate Thomas so
1: much, he gets three negative points from me.
2: Turdy Thomas gets triple the points.
1: Uh.
2: Um, I will give minus one to Mr. Richard Ray Malkin. Uh Uh, I think that, again, we're still not sure as to whether or not he is a fraud or not, but I feel like his approach to Claire has a little bit to be desired from. And look, we find out a lot of big, twisty, fun stuff from Ethan this episode, but he still gets minus one for being a creep and kidnapping a pregnant
1: woman. Okay, who else? Who else gets a minus point for you? Those two. Yeah, that's it. Um all right, so we've got a couple of new headlines. Uh Sawyer is no longer leading the L V P point category. Well, he's, he's got a, an Yeah, he's got buddies now in the bunker He's with, got buddies, yeah. He's in a negative three, three way tie with between himself and Thomas and Randy Nations. Uh those were our only shots at Thomas, I think. Unless yeah, we can would find some sort of excuse to maybe
2: in that one episode when we see uh accidentally one of Thomas's paintings in Winmore's office, maybe we can take a shot at him then.
1: Oh yeah, that works for me. Uh, no, I mean he'd have to give him a point for like getting on Charles Woodmore's radar. Uh, to be impressive.
2: fair, like, you give a point to Jack Bender because they revealed it was purely coincidental, and right. all these paintings were from
1: Jack Bender. True, 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 true. Uh, but Sawyer, he's slowly climbing the charts, and then no meaningful changes at the top of the list except that uh, Hurley, Charlie, and Claire are now tied in the same tier as the monster at two points. Ooh, Claire's friend for, for all of them. Yes, her friend. Uh, So two peas in a pod. All right, let's get into 4.2 stars, our episode rankings, and to reset how that works. I give a score on a scale from 0 to 4.2 for the episode. Mike does the same. You, dear listener, we are asking you to write in with your scores for each and every episode of Lost on a scale of 0 to 4.2. We will average the audience score, and then we average that audience score with my score, Mike's score for the grand total Down the Hatch official rating for each episode. And this is how we are doing our official Down the Hatch episode ranking. Season one is a flexible document until season one is finished. So here we go. I'm going to go ahead and give this episode a 3.6. I think it is of a similar quality level as Confidence Man and House of the Rising Sun. I think maybe it's a little bit better than both, personally, because it does have that major creep factor at the end of the episode. Uh, but I already wrote 3.6 and I don't want to screw with the math as we're recording the podcast, so I'm not going to push it to a 3.7. Uh, i reserve the right to maybe change that between now and next week.
2: I'm going to go a... Gooch! Lower. A baby size step lower. I'm gonna go with 3.5. I lock, like this episode slightly less than both House of, House of the Rising Sun and Confidence Man. I think that there is... All three have a lot of meaty stuff going on with both the A-plot and the B-plot, but I feel like for me with the character stuff, I don't know. I, I know that we spoke about, you know, me viewing Claire from a new light being a new parent, but there's still just something about the Jin and Son stuff from House of the Rising Sun and the Sawyer stuff from Confidence Man that just grabs me more in the moment than the clear stuff i certainly sympathize with her on a lot of stuff and i really like this as a character introduction and the ending is supreme and that's why i would put this episode you know this high but it's slightly lower uh for me just a 3.5
1: yeah for the audience uh it is among the lower scored episodes it's got a 3.3 from the listener's of Down the Hatch as it stands. Not enough to tank it to the lowest of the lows here on the Down the Hatch episode rankings. These are the official rankings through Raised by Another. In ninth place, The Moth. In 8th place, Tabula Rasa. In 7th <laughs> place, Raised by Another. Uh, coming in, lucky number seven. Uh 6, Confidence Man. 5, House of the Rising Sun. 4, Solitary. 3, White Rabbit. 2, Pilot. And 1, Walkabout uh, Still leading the pack. And it's a really tight race between the pilot and walkabout. 4.16 for walkabout. 4.15 for the pilot. Uh, we are still in no danger of the frozen donkey wheel now that we've made our rule change. Uh, so that's exciting, Mike. We don't have to worry. I still owe the world a Watership Down podcast that will come someday. Uh, promise is a promise. Just never really said when, uh, but it will it will come. Uh, we will make sure that that happens at some point in the not terribly distant future. Uh, I will also say that we unlocked the ability to have a Lindelof, a Lost song parody Woo! competition. And Mike, I have some uh, close to exciting news on that front. Uh, the report from the Ben behind the curtain is: we're close. We're close. Uh, nearly there. We're close. We're close to having enough. For, uh, for a competitive Lindelof. Uh, so if you're on the fence about wanting, if you're on the Sonic, the sonar fence, the Sonic <laughs> oh no. fence, close your ears. keep Put those earplugs in uh, or take them out uh, so that we can hear your Lindelofs. Uh, we want you to submit your ridiculous lost song parodies. Uh, you can do that down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. If it's a Google Drive or a Dropbox link, we're, we're going to be able to access it. Uh, so make sure you send it in however you need to send it in To us, we want that to happen, and when we have enough Lindelofs, we'll just drop it on you. It'll just be a big surprise, and everyone will be as confused as everybody else, and it'll be a delight.
2: Yeah, we'll drop it like a flashlight on a hatch.
1: All right, Mike, uh, that's happening next week. Uh, The next podcast, All the Best Cowboys Have Daddy Issues. Uh, we're getting to our, our second instance of a character with, a, with another flashback. Jack Shepard getting his second flashback of the whole show. Uh, very exciting episode. It's a race uh, to find Charlie and Claire. <laughs> like, can race. imagine
2: Rowan Atkinson uh-huh. be like, Ooh, you're cutting closer, and then he you're falls asleep. Clump. And then you yeah, end up on a Smash Mouth concert for some reason. <laughs>
1: Oh, man. Yeah, I think he said all star at one point in this uh, in this podcast. Uh, So we're going to get into it uh, next week. That podcast is going to drop in your feed October 25th. Get your feedback in by October 22nd, the morning of at the very latest, ideally October 21st in the evening. That is your best shot at making it into the podcast send that feedback our way down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com dot com is our email address you can also tweet at us i'm at round howard mike is at a mike bloom type uh also <laughs> <laughs> or Able booty mike if you want to remember also it that way as able booty mike, if that
2: if that sounds
1: better to you or or or, so, a, or at
2: sleep screamer apparently if
1: oh, you want yes. that as well. <laughs> Oh, that works too. That works too. Make sure you're tagging at post show recaps as well. Subscribe. Your ratings and reviews so greatly appreciated. And again, uh, lovely to to talk to whoever it was we talked to at the live know it alls about down the hatch. I'm sure we had a lovely conversation. We're just guessing because again, we're recording this before it happened. Uh, but, but, but we're hopeful that we met some people who've been listening to the podcast. By the time you are hearing this, uh, it's always so much fun to meet the people who are, who are listening to this insane stuff that we're just like barking into microphones uh, every week. You know, it really is like the creation process of a podcast like this uh, can drive you stark raving mad. Yeah. Uh, and it's always very fun and and validating when you realize you're not the only uh, insane person who's enjoying these shenanigans. So thank you so much to anybody who's uh, who's reaching out to us. It's it's really, really fun to share this with everybody. Yeah,
2: thank you for checking out our baby.
1: <laughs> yeah, our squirrel baby of a podcast. Uh, plenty of stuff going on on Potion Recaps. The aforementioned Mr. Robot podcast happening here. The Walking Dead uh, podcast that is happening with Jessica leese and I. Succession just wrapped up with Emily Fox and I. We are have to think about how we are going to be, uh, what we're going to be podcasting about here in the future. We've had a really fun run uh, since uh, Big Little Lies over the summer through Succession. We don't have any imminent plans for what we're going to do next, but we're talking about some ideas. If you've got ideas, if you enjoy listening to Emily Fox on these podcasts, let me know. Uh, open to ideas. Uh, of course, Watchmen podcasting mm-hmm. coming your way on series regular and on we'll, The Hollywood Reporter.
2: We got, I mean, uh, we got some a confirmation that I mean one person said that we could talk about Watchmen next time.
1: So yeah, I think at the very least, uh, if we if we've got time for it, maybe we can do a little something at the end of all the best cowboys. But uh, it's a lot of work that we got to talk about next week on the on the Lost podcast. So we'll we'll see where where that goes. But if you're itching for Watchmen takes. Antonio Mazzaro is going to be joining me over at Series Regular on The Hollywood Reporter. That's a whole separate podcast that you got to subscribe to. So seek out Series Regular on The Hollywood Reporter. I think we're going to have a really, really good uh, series of podcasts for a really amazing Damon Lindelof show. Uh, Mike, what else is going on in your neck of the woods?
2: Lots of Survivor stuff covering ExitPress4Parade.com, doing the RHAP B&B every week. Actually, just talk with the aforementioned La Rubota, the uh, one of the producers behind the great Survivor South Africa franchise, not only a Survivor superfan, but a lost superfan. He's been a big listener of this podcast, and he had such kind words about, as Josh says, the barking we've been doing for three hours at a time every week. So, Laru, thank you for listening. It's a really great conversation about what goes on behind the scenes of Survivor, at least from his perspective. Very fascinating, but I'm very excited for next week. As you said, it's probably going to be the most high-octane episode of Lost yet. We do get some character stuff and that we really see the adult Jack Christian schism that goes on when they're working side by side. But on the island, it's all about running and breathing, or lack thereof in Charlie's case. And it ends with a bang, quite literally, or a clang, I should say.
1: Yes, for a podcast called... Down the hatch. We are about to meet the hatch in our very next episode of the podcast. Until then, everybody, take care. Goodbye.